Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, August 22nd, 843-661-0937. So this is the last week that does not... Well, I mean, excuse me, I think there is college football, if I'm not mistaken, this weekend. Um, I think so. There are some marginal and mid-major teams that play um, this coming weekend. Um, no, there's a couple of bigger games this coming weekend. I'm ashamed that I've not checked the schedule. I've been too busy, Why man. Why is that? Why have because you I not... have been consumed by trying to convince people to be skeptical of the government. You are usually consumed with college football by about this time, certainly earlier than this time in the year. So what's different? You Why? know, I am in the... I'm, I'm, can I disclose this? I'm in the negotiating part of my employment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I operate under contract. I, you know, Community Broadcasters has a contract with um, me as a private contractor. So part of the um, part of the stipulation that I'm trying to require of my employers is to allow me to clearly identify what my goal and objectives are. So you ready, Freehold? Good morning, sir. Thanks to the Phillies for blowing a big lead yesterday, Freehold. We'll get to that in just a second. They were up what seven to t- six to oh, two. Oh no, or something. the Mets didn't win that game. Yeah, the Mets came back what? and won. They had a rain delay. The Mets come back and you score. You had one job. <laughs> yeah, to beat the Mets. I don't know why we didn't put our closer in. We have a really good closer, Sir Anthony Dominguez. I have no idea why they put these bums in because Gene Segura <laughs> hit bums. a Gene Segura hit a bomb in the bottom of the eighth. We took the lead back after they tied it. I thought you did. Yeah, they put in some scrub I never heard of. Yeah. And they lose the game. You had so one the, so the Braves have a good weekend. We went in two or three against the, the best team. Excuse me. Yeah, the best team in the American League. Uh, the Astros have the best record mm-hmm. in all of the American League. It's kind of interesting. The Braves have a better record than the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about the Yankees being so formidable. And, you know, this, they uh, were. I'll tell you, the Braves have the best lineup they've ever had. This is the best Braves team that they've ever had, as long as I've been following. I mean, it, it won't ski in now. Take the pitching out of the equation. This team is not as good pitching-wise as the others With were. those young Braves. Oh, it's it's a good team, man. I mean, it's an exciting team. Um, the one thing they're going to have to deal with is where to play two second basemen. I mean, they can't play both guys at second at one time, and I'm not sure who's better. I mean, this Grissom kid may be as good as Ozzy was. Ozzy will come back when September or somewhere thereabout. I would just teach one of these kids to play left field. I mean, it can't be that hard. I mean, if if um if if they're talented enough to make it to the major and they should leagues, make a spot in left field and get rid of Ozuna. Well, I mean, Ozuna's going to get rid of himself. Mm-hmm. But but the Braves can't have forty million dollars of egg on their face, right? I mean, they you know Ozuna can hit, but to me, if I'm the uh, the what was the guy's name, Alex, Alex uh, Anthropolis, yeah, Anthropolis, the um the front agent, excuse me, the um general manager, general manager and director of player President. personnel. Yeah, I mean he's he's the big wig, he's the big shot. Um. He's the one that Liberty Media allows to run the the entity that is the Atlanta Braves, and I think he's done a phenomenal job. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think he's one of the better GMs in all of us. If, if you're a Gamecock fan, I was arguing with Gamecock fans over the weekend, um, the Gamecocks are on their way to having one of their better recruiting years ever. It's number, I think, 15 in the country as Crazy. we speak, but it's ninth in the SEC. I mean, it's fifteenth in America, ninth in the SEC. All those welcome home well, I mean, you're, announcements you're, every weekend. You're in the, you're in, the, but I mean, Alabama's having a welcome home. Of course, you know the Braves are celebrating a four star. The uh, the Crimson Tide and Georgia Bulldogs are celebrating a five star. Um, it's as good as it's been in a while at South Carolina, but it's still number nine in a fourteen team conference called the SEC. Um, and we were arguing about that. I said, man, they've got to find somebody like this Braves general manager to run the athletic program. You're not going to out tradition Alabama. 
or Georgia or Clemson for that matter. So you've got to beat them some other way. The Braves have the 13th highest payroll in all of Major League Baseball. The Mets and Yankees and Dodgers should win. Right, Freehold? I mean, they, they've got a, a they're, they're big media markets. They've got a, a big media contract. The Braves just simply do not have. But I mean, let me back up. Liberty Media has not committed that much resources to the Atlanta Braves. This sit in Ted Turner's Atlanta Braves. This sit and write a big check, go get whomever you want to go get. I mean, this is Liberty Media saying, hey, here's your budget. Go make the best of it. And and Alex Andropoulos has done a phenomenal job. <laughs> they win one World Series. In, in making the best of it. Um, well, I mean, just some of the uh, decisions they make and, and tying up some of these young talent. You know, this will be the um, kind of the center of the team moving forward. Uh, yeah, but I think they're phenomenally run today. I think they're a better run team now, as good as Sherholtz was. I mean, I think this is a better managed uh, football enterprise. And I think the young guy just is talented. I think he's really good at it. Um, and I think if you're a Gamecock fan, you got to find somebody like that to run your organization. You're never going to be uh, the best of the best when it comes to running it. I'm talking about Alabama tradition and, you know, all the legacy and all these other things that, that go into it. You got to keep up another way. And I think the Braves have figured out a way to keep up another way. The Mets, Yankees, and Dodgers should be better than the Braves every single year. But the Braves, because of their front office competency, are able to stay right there and keep up with them. And the only thing we needed the Phillies to do is hold on yesterday and win two of three, while the Braves won two of three against the um, the Astros. The Braves have trouble on Sunday. They just don't, I don't know, one of these um, last game of a series, they just don't close the deal. You know, um, but winning five of seven against the, the better teams in yeah, baseball they had a really good is still run a very week. good um, and successful homestand. Um, but they're still four games down, or three and a half games down. It's a four, it's four games down. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's four at yeah, the, uh, the Mets one. With 39 games left. And, um, I mean, that's you got to pick up a game every 10 games. And that's, you know, you can't have a losing streak. And that just goes back to digging the 10 and a half game hole they dug, 11 in the loss column, um, so early in the year. So, um, yeah, I had a, um, I had an eventful weekend when it comes to politics because I, invested more time on the weekend than I normally do. Well, I want to hear about these negotiations. And, well, I mean, and the, the, okay, to go back to the negotiation. The, the, you you the, the require, my interest here. The requirement of my negotiation, you're aware of my ongoing negotiations, but the um, the requirement is to, I mean, I, I want it in clear language that, that I have the authority um, vested to me by the owners of community broadcasters to convince people to be skeptical of government more day by day by day by day. And I've got to get the right lawyer language in the contract that, that I have every right, every rationale to convince you, our listenership, to be more suspicious and skeptical of government today than you were yesterday, more tomorrow than you are today. I mean, that is my mission in life. <laughs> now, I want to go back to one other sports, and we'll give Bird of a Thousand Gods proper sponsorship due. Um, I'm a big race fan. I plan my trips home. You know, from the beach around what time the race starts. Kerry Tharp, I think, will be with us at 8.30 this morning from Darlington Raceway, the president of Darlington Raceway. Um, yesterday, I guess the two elite drivers in the sport today, I mean, the, the elite team, Hendrick Motorsports, has two um, golden boys. One is Kyle Larson, the other is Chase Elliott, and they were running one and two yesterday. Yeah, what happened to your boy? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that he's my boy. He's Bill Elliott's son. Right. You know, and I was a big, big Bill Elliott fan. But you but like Chase. I, I like Chase a lot because I think he's he's a connection to the past, and he's handled himself 
admirably, but it's easy to label Chase as a daddy's boy. You know, one of the golden boys, one of the privileged. Um, he's a little bit like Dale Earnhardt Jr. I mean, of course he's going to have a good career. Look at his last name and what his father was <laughs> in that sport. Now, now I've said it before and I'll say it again. The reason, because I, I don't normally like legacies. You know what I mean? In dynasties, I don't normally like that. I mean, I like to disrupt these sorts of things. The reason that I give Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Chase Elliott a, a break when I normally would not is because they don't act like they were, excuse me, they don't act like they hit a triple. They act exactly like they were born on third base. You know what I mean? And there's some humility that comes along with those two guys that um some of those that aren't as good <laughs> should. Now, now, I'll say this. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was not as good a driver nor committed to be as good a driver as his father. I think Chase Elliott may be a better driver than his dad and more committed to becoming, you know, one of the all-time greats. I don't know that um Dale Earnhardt Jr. ever had it in him to be an all-time great driver. I think he respected the opportunity, and I think he knew the, the legacy and namesake, but I don't think Junior was ever <sighs> motivated to be one of the all-time greats. I think Chase Elliott is. I mean, I think he wants to make a name for himself as one of the all-time. And I think he's got a little bit of something. He's got a little chip on his shoulder because people perceive him to be as, you know, one of these guys. Well, I mean, obviously, NASCAR wants him to do good. I mean, they'll tell you, you know, I got buddies of mine who <laughs> don't care much for Elliott because he's not driving a Ford. And they'll say, man, they wouldn't have thrown a caution for anything. You know what I mean? Uh, there, there's people, they're, they're mangled bodies laying on the backstretch, but Chase is leading, so they just let the drivers drive around the mangled bodies to make sure he gets out of the finish line first. But yesterday, in one of the more eventful races in a long time, um, kind of yeah, kind of interesting part of yesterday's race real quick, the 2007 Formula One champion was racing in a NASCAR race um, and that was kind of interesting. Uh, what's his name? Ricky. Uh, anyway, I can't try to pronounce his name. He's from a far, imagine that he's from a foreign land being a formula one champion, but the 2007, what was his name? I mean, yeah. Uh, Rainick. Yeah. Rainick. So yes, one of those names. You said it better than Something I, like that's that. why I didn't even attempt it. Yeah. The, the guy with a weird name, um, <laughs> the 2007 formula one champion. So, so yesterday on the last restart with about three laps to go. Now it's, it's a long lap on a restart. Watkins Glen. New York is one of these road courses, and they're running too many road courses. Get these cars back on ovals. These cars are big and heavy and underpowered. They're not like Indy cars. They're not like Formula One cars. They're cumbersome. They just don't. It's not as interesting to watch those big, heavy cars try to take 14 turns on one lap of a racetrack as it is some of the Formula Ones and some of the uh, some of the Indy cars. But yesterday, um, Larson. Um, what we, and, and I, mean, I, I told racing here, he doored Chase Elliott. I mean, that means he drove into the corner knowing there was no way in God's name he could hold it under control, but he goes up and he kind of runs Elliott off into the, um, into the, um, the, the abyss. I mean, there's not a rail there because it's a road course, very different, but then he kind of says, Hey man, I, you know, I don't like winning like that, but you do what you got to do. And I just think the one chase, the one thing Chase Elliott has to do when, when, when Larson says you do what you got to do. That's his teammate, but but Chase has tried to be a good teammate to Larson. I think the the majority of Hendrick cars. I mean, if you race to win, I get that. I mean, I understand that. But it doesn't take much of a talented driver. Kyle Larson is probably one of the most talented drivers in racing today. But it doesn't take a lot of talent to do what he did yesterday. I mean, you just drive it off in that corner um, and not break until you stop. 
I mean, the racetrack turns and you have to at some point in time, <laughs> but you just kind of use that car on the other side to stop you from going off into the abyss and you send him off into the abyss. And that was kind of a heated conversation. Well, as heated as it could be with a subordinate. Yeah, so <laughs> was, it, was it Chase and Rick Ch- Hendrick? Chase and Rick Hendrick yeah. were kind of, I mean, Hendrick was listening. And, and then Jeff Gordon walks up, and I think he's director of competition at Hendrick Motorsports. And, uh, and you couldn't it, hear what they were saying. No, nah, but you, you could, could kind of, you could sense that I Chase was not. And I think what Chase is saying is, look, man, I've tried to run my teammate as clean. You're the boss, Mr. H. I mean, these are your cars. I work for you. Kyle works for you. But I'm not going to let him run me like that and me not retaliate. You know, I don't want to tear your cars up because I drive your car and he drives your car. But this is going to make the balance of the playoffs so interesting uh it's a little bit like you wonder if it was a wrestling match <laughs> you know you wonder if um somebody got the memo to hey man let's let's jazz this thing up a little bit you know what i mean Let, let's get this thing real interested um because these two guys are two of the bigger names in the sport two of them are, i mean the most competent race team in nascar for a long time as hendrick motorsports so um i mean i didn't get angry i'm a chase elliott fan i mean i do because i pulled for bill but I just, I mean, it didn't bother me much because they're both in the playoffs. They both have solidified themselves as two of the favorites of the playoffs. Um, but, but I think it makes the racing so much more interesting to know. Now you've got kind of a subplot, Rev. You've got teammates yeah. aggravated with one another. Wonder if, um, wonder if Kyle and Chase will sit down today and try to make amends. Well, and what will Chase do? Will he choose to retaliate? Well, I mean, the bad boy of sports radio, you know, the guy that hosts our morning show, Alan Smothers, on our sports affiliate, he has the best um, the scenario of which NASCAR would benefit more than anything. Take the nicest guy in racing, Chase Elliott, turn him into a heel. <laughs> you know, make him the bad guy. There in other go. words, next week, Chase just wrecks everybody. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Dale Earnhardt Sr., he just runs over everybody that gets in his way. Um, and, yeah, I mean, turning the good guy. All of a sudden, Chase Elliott shows up at the. He's not George Strait wearing the white hat. He's George Strait wearing the black hat. And I do think that would be the most beneficial storyline uh, to to I don't know to generate more interest in NASCAR. Nineteen forty seven. Hold on to that number. Hold on to that year. Nineteen forty seven. We're gonna take a break here, uh, Freehold. But hold on to nineteen forty seven. Um, why does that year matter? I mean, I've spent a lot of time this weekend. I normally don't. But I spent a lot of time this weekend delving in to American politics. Hold on to that year, 1947. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. So, yeah, 1947. I want to hold on to that year for just a second. Um, and I want to make sure I've got your blessing. Obviously, I don't have corporate's blessing. But um, but I am, am I within my rights to make people more skeptical of government than they ever have been before? I mean, I, that's, that's what I want my objective and mission to be, is to convince you, our listeners, however many of you there are, to what degree of interest you may have, you need to be more skeptical of government and any public institution, authoritative entity, than you ever have been before. That's the only way we win this, guys. I mean, a lot of us have had conversations over the past couple of weeks. Um, how do we win? I mean, where, where are the, the markers of success or, or making progress? And I go back to the dark enlighteners, the Peter Thiels of the world. Um, Peter Thiel believes that the, the less trust you, the public, have in institutions, the better off we are. I mean, if we're going to salvage the union, if we're going to preserve uh, the democracy, then you have to be more and more and more skeptical 
of these government agencies who have proven to you time and time again they're not to be trusted. To what degree are they to not be trusted? That's kind of a debate I want to have this morning, and maybe the balance of the week shows could be about um, how suspicious we need to be, how skeptical we need to be to try and, I don't know, Rev, turn this thing around and win the macro. Well, ask yourself, do you trust the IRS? Do of course you, not. Do you trust the FBI? Of course not. The you DOJ? Better, well, I mean, the CDC is the most recent example. It's I mean, the CDC, CDC basically right. says, hey, we blew it. Yeah, we blew it. Um, but nothing's going to happen. I mean, nothing. We've got to get it to a point when they blow it, there's some consequence. If I blow it, and I've blown it before, when I blow it, guess what? I struggle. I mean, I blew it as lieutenant governor. Guess what happened to me? I mean, I struggled. You know what I mean? I had some things in my personal life that were a little bit intimidating. But, but I had pay, to try paid, and deal with price. it. I paid a big price, but I had to try to deal with it. I had to try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. If you're an insider, if you're an elitist, an establishment, a status quo, a cathedralist, um, you escape any of the realities that the rest of the world has to deal with when we blow it. So the only thing I want, I don't want to treat government unfairly. I want to treat government fairly. When they blow it, I want somebody to pay the bill. I want somebody to... To be, to, I don't want to. I don't take any joy in anybody suffering, but when somebody inside the cathedral blows it, they need to struggle. They need to pay a price, just like those of us who aren't in the cathedral. When we blow it, guess what? Something happens. There are consequences. We pay a price. When somebody at the CD, how is Rachel Walensky still employed by the CDC? She's one of them. We blew it. I mean, she admits it. We blew it. A lot of people say it's a, it's a, you know, what, what a courageous bureaucrat she is. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, she's an incompetent bureaucrat. I don't know how much courage it takes to say we blew it when the report is about to come out saying you blew it, but I want people to be held accountable. When people inside the, the, the bellies of the beast blow it, we need to demand that they be held accountable. Let's go to the phone. Breeze joins us now. Hey, Breeze. Hey, did, did she really blow it, or did she do exactly what she was told to do? Anyway, uh, if, if, so the administration caused gas prices to go up over $5 a gallon, $6, $7 some places with their policies. Now, conveniently, gas prices are going down. Granted, they're still about a dollar high. And so, you know, they blame, do we do we give Biden the credit that there are just a coincidence that they're going down right before the midterms? Is it the economy slowing down? I mean, you can't tell here, but I have no trust for any of it, like you say. And then another question I'm looking at is, it looks like the Republicans may manage to actually lose some seats, to, you know, lose some seats that they actually already have. I mean, how do you do that? Is that incompetence, or are they just intentionally putting crappy candidates out there? I mean, that's the next thing. And then, you know, you start talking about this thing with the IRS, and, you know, you made that post this weekend, and you have to ask yourself, what kind of an individual are they trying to find to do that job? Like they say, they go to your son say, oh, young kitty, uh, we want you to be an IRS agent. I want you to go after your dad, your uncles, your family, your friends. Of course, they're probably shipping somewhere else, but you see where I'm going. What kind of an individual wants to join the Gestapo? What kind of an individual wants to join the, the uh, KGB or the, or the or, you know, or any of these other state polices that these 
dictators and uh, communist regimes have? I mean, that's a question. And I know that right now, that what they're looking for, they want to get the patriots out of these federal uh, positions. They don't want people that will follow the Constitution. They want people that will follow, you know, the cathedral. They'll want the people to follow what their government leaders tell them. They want people that will drop the cyanide canister into the boxcar. You know, so, I mean, but here's the kicker. Like I said, the funny part about all of this, yeah, they will go after. They will go after the patriots. They will go after everybody that they perceive as their political enemy. Once they've taken care of all of them, then they're going to turn on their own supporters. And then they're going to tighten that noose on them even more, and they're going to increase the yoke of charity where you have an entire country that is obedient and subservient to the God of government. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. A lot to cover on a Monday morning from Breeze. He's like me. Busy head syndrome takes over. A weekend of pent-up thoughts and um, <laughs> and summations, uh, verbal summations. I'll, I'll say this. Breeze is talking about uh, gas. The reason gas is going down is twofold. We're releasing about a million uh, barrels a day of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, that's in the name of war, national emergency. Supposed to be. Or to win an election, you know. So, right. so, so, so why does it really matter? Yeah, you should know? we go back as the prices rose, it was blamed on Putin. Remember? Sure, Putin's sure, sure. gas hike. Sure. And I just think it's rich that, of course, now Biden's even tweeting, but Rev, hey, this is but, but, Biden's oh, But why would you not be dishonest if nobody holds you accountable? Why wouldn't you be a liar if you were allowed to be? Of course. I mean, it, it really comes down to this. Um, I mean, I, I've asked myself a lot of this recently. Um, fundamental dishonesty or innocent delusion. I mean, I think there's some of both in this. And I think Breeze would probably, no, nah, I mean, it's not innocent delusion. I mean, this is fundamental dishonesty. It's very intentional. Uh, they know exactly what it is uh, they're doing. But, but the reason that gas is going down is China has implemented some pretty strict COVID restrictions. Um, and we're releasing about a million gallons, excuse me, a million barrels of oil a day to the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, to the free market, to the open market. Remember when it was found that uh, we're, you know, some of the oil is going to China? Well, China has refining capacity. I mean, China's not done what we've done. I mean, they've not EPA'd it, you know, out of existence. You can build a refinery in China, reasonably priced, and expect to make a profit. Now, state-run economy, and I get that. It's not capitalism, but but it, it, it is a little bit... I mean, China is the unique example of, you know, communist drinking Starbucks. I know know it's kind of weird, but communist drinking Starbucks is the best way I can explain the Chinese economy. But they are, we are, in the name of, um, I don't know, Rev, winning an election, releasing about a million barrels a day of oil from the Strategic Reserve um, that is basically um, designated in cases of national emergency. I mean, that's why we've got the energy. That's why we reserve the oil if we have a war, is what it is. Well, I mean, I guess the, the Democrats have declared war on the Republicans to the extent of releasing a million barrels of oil a day uh, via the um, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that's kind of, um, that's addressed some of the um, imbalance in the market, supply and demand, where the margins are. Uh, but, but the other is China has uh, implemented some of these fairly strict COVID requirements, and that has slowed their economy down. There's some reason to believe, and this will be interesting to watch, there's some reason to believe that China is beginning to 
uh, allow business to get back to normal. I mean, they run the businesses, the state-run economy, but they're allowing some of the uh, some of the economy to get back in full force. If that happens, you'll see gas increase. I mean, I predict in a week, maybe 10 days, you'll see a, a kind of an uptick. I mean, we're heading into Labor Day weekend. That's a big travel weekend. But but a lot of this is about China um, and, and, you know, them being under COVID restrictions. We believe they're going to release some of the or relieve some of these COVID restrictions and um, and gas will begin to increase in price again. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the strategic energy, tr- strategic petroleum reserve is to fight wars or win elections. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Bob and Florence. Hello, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, um, Breeze touched on this just momentarily, but I wonder if you could sort of expand and give your uh, understanding about the um, um, this, this past uh, last late last week and into this weekend, the um, mainstream media and everyone have been jumping up and down and just just gleeful about uh, after McConnell made his comments about weak uh, senatorial candidates. And they all feel like they're on a roll now and that that they may even maintain the um, the House. And it, it, it just it, it seems to have the essence of the media making up a story. Um, I have heard that the polls are bad in Pennsylvania and um, uh, there's another race that uh, in Georgia, the senatorial races there um, that might be not so good. But they've taken that and run with it and turned it into an event. And I'll just let Ken, I'll just let you uh, make comment on that, and I'll get out of the way. Thank you, sir. To that point, Robert Cahaley will be with us 8.05 Thursday morning. Robert will have a lot of fresh information. Nevada poll came out yesterday. I think an Ohio poll will come out today. Uh, A Pennsylvania poll came out yesterday. Arizona, um, all of these critical states. Even the Trafalgar poll poll had some of these Republicans in Arizona. But the, but the Democrats have spent heavily, the Republicans, and here's what Breeze is talking about and, um, and what Bob just mentioned, McConnell's pulling back some of the funding from Nevada, from Georgia, from Pennsylvania, and from Arizona, and he's calling it inferior candidates. This is what you get when Trump endorses these fringe candidates and they win um, races. That is not the case. Robert and I conversed a good bit over the weekend. He's agreed to come on. Uh, I wanted him on now. And he said, no, let's wait until Wednesday or Thursday. I'll have all of my data. I mean, I'll have a, uh, you know, all of my data points, all of my tabs. I mean, th- there's some tabulations within the polling that senior pollsters like to review and I don't know, educate themselves about some of the, what they call, call they're called cross tabs. You know, uh, some of the polling says that this person's four points ahead of that person, but let's reference some of the cross tabs and let him dig into uh, the minutia so Robert will be with us. That's quite a treat for a feeble attempt at radio brands, mm-hmm. a local radio show to have one of the preeminent pollsters in America, not on standby. I mean, I'm not going to insult Robert and say he's on standby, but he's available when needed. And um, and I talked to him a good bit over the weekend. The, the Republicans are not in bad shape. I mean, they're not. And I want you to think about this before we take our next break. Uh, Bob, I'll break it down. I mean, I'll go through some of the numerics. There are 14 races that, that are in play in the Senate. 14. The Republicans are going to win the House, period. Forget any other narrative. I mean, that's done. There's nothing in this world that is going to stop the Republicans from winning the House. I mean, we gerrymandered the districts. The Republicans are going to win some of these in the macros. We talked a good bit last week about some of the uh, wrong track, right track and some of the uh, presidential approval ratings 
uh, unless this is the anomaly of all anomalies, and we've seen that recently, um, mm-hmm. the Republicans are going to win the House. When McConnell says that it's highly unlikely the Republicans win the Senate, that's just not being honest. I mean, that's McConnell not wanting the Republicans to win the Senate because there aren't his kind of Republicans, what? of course. So you got 14 seats that are up for play. You got two safe in the D's. Uh, Blumenthal in Connecticut, Murray in Washington is a safe D. Uh, you got a, a lean D. Bennett in Colorado is the lean D. Uh, and then you've got two safe Republican seats, Murkowski in Alaska or somebody like that. I mean, it may not be as conservative or Republican as we want. And then you've got uh, the Missouri seat is an open seat, but the Republican is going to win that. Now, I mean, I hear about an independent candidate running in Missouri. And then you've got um, you've got Rubio in Florida leaning Republican. The Florida's still a little bit of a, of a swing state, so Rubio's got to be careful there. And then you've got eight races that are considered Tulsa's. I mean, that's where we are. You've got uh, of the 14 seats uh, up for grabs. You've got three, excuse me, you've got two safe D's, two safe R's, one lean D, one lean R, and eight that are up for grabs. Of the eight up for grabs, Kelly with a D, Warnock with a D, Hassan in New Hampshire with a D. Um, you got the North Carolina open seat. I think that leans to the Republican. You've got Nevada, Cortez Mastro. Is it Mastro? Yeah, not Mastro, Mosto, who's a Democrat. And Adam Laxalt is the Republican running against that person. Pennsylvania is the open seat. That's Oz and Fetterman. And then you've got Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson, the incumbent. And then you've got the open seat, Ohio, Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. I mean, that's kind of where we are. So it's not uh, it's not as doomy and gloomy as McConnell. It, it's doomy and gloomy for him because most of these guys running uh, are not status quo Republicans. They aren't. I mean, the majority of these candidates are America first Republicans. Um, you know, I'd love to vote for J.D. Vance. I'd love to b- vote for Blake Masters and Dr. Oz and, uh, and Herschel Walker, but I can't. I mean, I don't live in Georgia. I don't live in uh, Arizona or Ohio or it's Pennsylvania. Hard for, me, hard for me to believe that McConnell would actually, I guess, not help to say the least, but torpedo the Republicans' chance well, he, of getting the Senate. Well, I mean, he's in charge of the national. Because. But he's in charge of the national senatorial committee, and they've cut about three and a half million dollars yeah, of funding but, in Arizona. But, but he would do that just, of just because he's not getting his Rev, way in the type not, of candidates. Listen to me. You're going to make me hit you. Um, <laughs> I'm just asking When the you hear McConnell and Cheney say things like democracy, th- don't listen to that. That's globalism. Liz it's Cheney doesn't have a limited government bone in her body. Mitch McConnell doesn't have a limited government bone in his body. That They are globalist. They are interventionist. They are establishment-oriented. Listen to their verbiage. They don't mean what they say they mean. McConnell is not a limited government Republican. He's not an America First Republican. He's an interventionist. He's a globalist. He's an open border advocate. The same thing Liz Cheney is. When they say protect democracy and preserve the union, just convince yourself that what they're saying is globalism, interventionism, open border, and inside baseball. These folks don't have any adherence or any connection to liberties and freedoms. That's not who they are. But but they see their political lives at risk. Now, but they see this um the you know the times they are a changing, as Bob Dylan once said, and they sense that they see that, and they're holding on for dear life. So so McConnell's making a long play. I'll give up this election cycle to make sure America First doesn't become uh, the force du jour in the U.S. Senate. McConnell's not about small government. He's not about liberties and freedoms. He's about power. 
He's about control. And the way he has stayed in power and control is to gain favor with, with a globalist agenda, with an interventionist agenda, uh, and with kind of the, um, uh, the pro-China, open border, um, lax immigration laws. That's who McConnell is. That's who Liz Cheney was. And we've got to convince ourselves that what they say means something other than uh, what they mean. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, guys. You think uh, Joe Manchin's a little more distrustful of government? I thought that was pretty interesting that now they're saying they're not going to give him everything that he wanted to to, to uh, turn on his fellow Americans. But uh, I just thought that was quite humorous. Um, you know, we we spent last week talking about deep thinkers, and when we when, when we look at these people that are running our government. And you're wondering how many of them are out there, and you keep seeing seemingly, you know, screw-up after screw-up after screw-up. And, Ken, you're talking about, you know, we need to elect these other people and, 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 you know, hold people accountable to what they say and all this and that. With the press as as messed up the way it is, do you you think there's ever a shot of that actually happening? Uh, Because I just... I don't think most human beings take the time to dig deep enough beyond whatever, you know, we're seeing on TV. And, and I know I sound doom and gloom and I'm skeptic and everything else, but I think we've got good reason to be. You know, I, I, had a, I was thinking this weekend about the word evil. And, you know, whenever we bring that up, we always, we always say, well, I think most people, you know, I think most people are generally good. And, and it's just a few. What? And I, I guess I sort of believe that, but I don't think it's as true as it was a few weeks ago or a few years ago. I think there's a lot of evil in the world. I think there's a lot of the people that we walk past every day that are evil. Look at what they're voting for. You look at what they're voting for. They, there has to be some evil going on there. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting call. Uh, I'll express to you this. I mean, I've kind of joked around with the negotiations I'm in with our owners, um, I'm burdened. I mean, I, you know, I can relate to Limbaugh. Remember Rush says, uh, before he died, I mean, not the day he died or the day before he died, but Rush expressed at a moment, uh, when he knew he was on his deathbed or he's heading toward his eventual demise. I mean, we're all on our deathbed to some degree, but Rush was at death's door and he knew that. And he said that he was disappointed in himself for not being as effective as he needed to be because Republicans were not in charge. Democrats held the Congress when Limbaugh died. And and he felt like, you know, as, as effective as we think he was at articulating the role of government, the responsibilities of government, um, the expressions of liberties and freedoms that we all hold um, so near and dear, the Republicans were still losing elections. The Democrats were still winning elections. Uh, they were winning in, I mean, I've got a list here, 14 races. As many are safe and lean Democrat as are safe and lean Republican. I'm burdened by that. I mean, not to the extent that Limbaugh, well, I mean, I tell, I'm as burdened as I think he was. I just don't have the potential to change things like he did. And, and I'm going to commit to you the next 10 years of my life to try and convince 
as many of you as I can to be skeptical of government. I'm not going to convince you to believe X, Y, or Z. I mean, I don't think that's in my purview. I don't think that's my responsibility. I mean, I'm going to articulate how I see every single issue and my opinions are of such, but Freehold has a right to decide on his own. Dave has a right to decide on its own. You know, I'm serious because I didn't call you Reb. Um, well, I did call him Freehold. Uh, let me do this again. <laughs> Mike has a right to decide on its own. Um, you know, Dave has a right. Dale has a right to decide. I, I'm not in the indoctrination or brainwashing business, even if I were capable of that. But I do want you to become more skeptical of those who say I know best. Um, I do. Uh, I, I, I do worry that the odds are so stacked against us. I was texting with a listener of this show over the weekend about, you know, how do we do this? I mean, if you've got a captive media and you've got a, um, a monolithic educational system and you've got bureaucratic agencies that are complicit in thwarting any effort that comes its way, how do you win? I mean, how do you win a football game with the other team? I mean, if, if, if you go to the coin toss at the midfield and the referee says, hey, uh, only the rules apply to you. I mean, if you're a Clemson fan and you played, you know, Florida State or Alabama or some of these other teams, I'm not going to say Carolina because you could probably beat Carolina if the rules didn't apply <laughs> equally across, across the board. Uh, but wait till next year. Um, but, but what if, well, I mean, seriously, what if you went to midfield and the referee said, okay, here's your set of rules and here are yours. And that's kind of where we are. Talk about baseball a lot here. What if you were the Yankees and every game was in Fenway Park and every ball and strike were called by Carl Yastrzemski or a member of the, you know, the Fred Lynn family? Uh, I mean, do you think you're going to get a fair shake or not? So, so I do, uh, I am burdened by that. I am bothered by that, but I'm motivated and I'm moved by that. And I realize um, that I only have certain influences and certain abilities, but, but if we can have this conversation every morning, in our part of the country, and you can go have a conversation with a coworker or a spouse or, or a family member or a friend or a confidant, then it's kind of like compounding interest. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, I'd, I wonder whether we can ever turn the tide. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Hour number two on a Takes Mondays to Make Fridays edition of Wake Up Carolina. I remember that day well that Rush Limbaugh. What day is that? Well, you were talking about Rush Limbaugh when he came on the air, and I think it was a little before Christmas, before he was getting ready to take his Christmas break that year, and then he died the next February. So this was he had, in, he, he'd already announced his disease. And, oh, yeah, this was like December of 2020, and I okay. think he died in February of 21, I believe. I think you're right. Um, and I remember distinctly when he made that uh, announcement on the air, uh, because and I was I was driving on Alligator Road, believe it or not. That's how much it impacted me. Where he said he felt like a failure. I mean, as successful as he was, I mean, business wise, you know, stratospheric success. If you measure measure sure. that by money, I mean, sure, he, he had a, a well, that's kind of how we measured about six hundred million dollars mm-hmm. when he died. But he said, and he worked. You know, he obviously got to the top of his craft. He's on the most radio stations, has the most listeners. Okay, but he said he felt like a tremendous failure. Okay, let's let's ponder this for a second. Obviously, Rush was a giant commercial success, without question. I mean, it's hard to argue House in Palm Beach, you know what I mean? A net mm-hmm. worth of $600 million talking for three hours every day about, about American politics. So there's no disputing that. Even his greatest antagonist would have to admit and accept uh, that reality, right? I mean, but, but let me ask you this. Um, I'm not asking you whether he was good for the discourse. 
You know, there, there are people who will debate whether Limbaugh is net negative, net positive to American politics. Did he help the Republicans? I mean, because when you look at it as a, as a percentage, if, if Limbaugh was highly effective, I mean, he was highly successful, but highly successful does not necessarily dictate um, highly, you know, influential. Mm-hmm. Um, was he was he influential? I think he was. In and what way? Well, well, but I mean, I mean let, let's, let, me, it, let me finish. Okay. And I want to get your take on this. So if Limbaugh started and Republicans won 50% of the elections, and when Limbaugh finished, Republicans were winning 50% of the elections, what was his success? Not commercial success. Not making a lot of money and being on a lot of radio. I mean, nobody can dispute that. I, I don't give a damn where you come from or what you believe. Nobody can deny that. I mean, it's a little bit like you're not a big Springsteen fan, but you can't deny his relevance. You can't deny his success. Of course. Um, I'm, I'm not the biggest uh, Michael Jackson fan because I'm a racist. Um, but you can't <laughs> deny how iconic he was. I mean, nobody can deny. I mean, the metrics and measures of which we gauge capitalism and, and market-driven success, nobody could argue that. So, so Limbaugh was highly, highly successful in the marketplace. Was he effective, and how do you measure effectiveness in a world of Limbaugh? Um, I think he was, and of course it's speculative sure, to even think sure. about this, but I, all I can do is imagine that if he wasn't there, where conservatism and republicanism, if you will, where it might be. And then that's all I can really equate that to. Um, you know, with, with, with the societal trends over the last 30 years when he was on the air, you know, I just gotta, I just gotta believe he was so effective at what he did that I got to believe that it was effective. Let me, let me stop you there. Okay. Um, he was so, so successful at what he did or so effective well, at what he did. He, you said effective. Right. And, uh, there's and no doubt he was successful. He was effective at communicating okay. those ideas and values. He spoke for you. Yeah. Okay. He articulated things and communicated things in a way. He communicated and articulated things that you felt but lacked the ability um, to, to effectively articulate as he did. That's okay, fair. fair enough. That's fair. But, but if Republicans won elections before Limbaugh, they didn't win a higher percentage of elections after Limbaugh, then was he effective or was he successful? I mean, I think that's an, an honest debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he was successful and effective. It's easy to gauge his success. It's much more complicated to measure whether he was effective or not. The point I try to make earlier, and I'll go back to the, to the I know you said you remember that moment that he said he felt like a failure. I don't feel like a failure, but I feel burdened. I mean, I feel That's burdened. Point. Well, I mean, I, I just do feel, Rev. I feel like we are at a, a monumental conflict point in American history, and I have a forum. However small it may be, I have a forum to advance a belief, to advance a, you know, a, a philosophy that I deeply believe in. One of the great regrets about Limbaugh that I have personally, how would Rush have walked through the America First movement? I mean, you got to admit, I'm 30-some-odd years on the radio. Most of it was conservatism 101, right? I mean, Limbaugh would talk about the National Review and the Weekly Standard. There was probably a day that Limbaugh looked up to uh, Bill Kristol and and some of the, you know, the Bushes, and he was a defender of them because they were Republicans. What, What if Rush began his career in broadcasting at about the same time that the party began this this um, search and journey for, you know, the America First movement. I just think that's an interesting mm-hmm. point to be made. I mean, I don't have 30 years under the belt. I don't have millions and millions and millions of listeners. I'm not on 600 radio stations, 
but I'm burdened by the opportunity I have every morning and how effective I am or am not. I mean, and I mean that. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not just saying that to try and convince people. You know, um, wow, man, th- this is a guy who takes his job seriously. I mean, I think I've proven that over the long run that I'm a guy that takes his job seriously. Um, and I learned a lot from Limbaugh. I mean, there's no doubt about this. You'd be a moron to not study. You know how he went about the business, how he addressed the craft, how he um, engaged an audience. I mean, I think you're a, an idiot to not at least. I mean, it'd be like a rock and roller not watching film of Elvis. You know, why, I mean, how stupid would that be? I mean, he was the guy that basically invented it, created it out of thin air, and and you know allowed it to be a force of what he considered to be good. And some would argue it was not um, so good, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 as burdened right now as I've ever been about having an opportunity to address an audience on some of the and I once again, Rev, I believe the best service I can provide in 20 or 25 years from now. Did Kennard convince people? I never talk to the first person. Let me say this again. <laughs> did I convince people? Wow, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm stop that. Uh, I'm a little bit spooky there. God forgive me. Um, did I convince people? Happens rarely. Did I convince people? to be skeptical of government in a legitimate fashion. In other words, what was their credibility and credence to the argument I made when I try to convince you to be highly skeptical of your government? That That is a metric and a measure of which I want to make as a priority of uh, Wake Up Carolina. Go back six or seven years. Would you have felt the same way? Did you have no, a skepticism no, no, of government? No, 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 I mean, no, 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 no. Aside from what you'd been through personally, I— I realized that, you know, once again, the um, the captive media, uh, the monolithic education system, I understood how challenging that was going to be, but I never imagined 20% of Republicans would turn. I never imagined that 20, Liz Cheney said yesterday she's going to do everything in her power to stop America First Republicans from winning elections. I mean, she represents, let's say, 15 to 20 percent of the party that believes it's better for Joe Biden and a liberal Democrat to be president. Yeah, I mean, I always knew the Democrats were going to be a worthy foe and liberalism was going to creep ever more into our lives. But I never imagined that I had to deal with 20 percent of the Republican Party and adhering um, to not values and principles, but what is politically expedient or not. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Good morning. I'm going to say something kind of controversial, and I'm going to say that Rush Limbaugh was a safe harbor for people who already believed what he believed, and he was a professor to the converted. But I don't know that Rush Limbaugh, and there'll be a handful of people who say, oh, well, I turned on the radio and I heard Rush Limbaugh and I was converted. But I always think about, I always make this comparison that Rush Limbaugh it was like, if you went and got converted, let's use make a religious experience. You got converted, but then you found out that the church you went to was completely dysfunctional. And there was this other church that did a really good job of providing for, you know, your children's Sunday school classes. And they had, you know, football and, and, and Christian this and Christian that. And so you left your, the place that converted you for this better place of similar like-minded people. I think Rush Limbaugh elevated and educated the converted. But what he didn't do a good job is he didn't do a good job teaching us how to convert. So we've steeped in our conservatism, we've steeped in our beliefs, but we really didn't spread anything. 
And I, I think that's the case. And what the Democrats have always been so good at is converting. They, they get you when you're a baby, and they start teaching you their way of life. We don't do that. What we do is we make truth social. We leave. We leave the debate, and we say, come on over here to this safe harbor, guys. This is, we'll treat you right over here. Come on, all you, all you conservatives and like-minded people, just leave those folks alone and come over here and be separate. But we're not converting. And then all the Democrats have to do is say, see those guys over there? They're a bunch of a-holes. And that's that. Where we were doing really well was when we were on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter saying, these people are pedophiles. These people are communists. And what did they do? They silenced it. So we're going to have to figure out where we can go that we are not silenced. And we've got to stop separating ourselves from that debate and say, well, if they don't like us, we'll just leave. And I think Rush Limbaugh was one of the places that we could leave and find safe harbor and go, yeah, yeah, right on, right on. He's just like us. So, Larry, I'll agree with 99% of what you're saying. So if you choose to not leave, but you're banished. I mean, what right. do we do? I don't run just YouTube. I don't run Google. I don't run, you know, Facebook. So, so once again, I mean, I believe in everything you just said. And I'm, I'm, I'm man enough, and I know you are, to stand there and try to follow up on the conversion. But what if I'm not allowed to because of uh, this, this captive mania, this monolithic education system? When I, I guess the question I'm asking, and for full disclosure, Larry and I texted a little bit yesterday, when is the fight so... Um, gigantically one-sided that you and I say, screw it, man, I give up. I mean, I don't know what else to do. There is no plan B uh, once once we get banished from any debate or dialogue. I don't think we're there yet. And I think what we should do is the same thing that we're all afraid that Democrats will do to us when they hear something they don't like. When you're at work, you're scared to death to say something, you know, that would be, you know, quintessentially Republican because you might get sued. They might go to HR. They might go complain. We should have been doing that. We should have had Google tied up in court for a thousand years, but instead we left and we made some, you know, duck, duck, go, or we left and we made true social, or we left and we made whatever. We keep leaving. We leave the fight. Well, that's how they keep getting stronger and stronger is because their opposition goes away. We should have had them so tied up in court. We should have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. We should have been advertising a certain way. We should have been writing articles a certain way. We should have had them in court. We should be teach. We should be creating universities to create teachers to go back into the school and undo what's been done. We're not fighting the fight. We think the fight's at the ballot box, and they've already proven to us those of us who are paying attention, that the ballot box is also given over. We are going to have to do it the same way they did it. We've got to get in there and fight. We should be spending our money and our time and our talent thwarting them, stymieing them, slowing them down, not, in, not with this new law, with, with the system. We've got to use the system the same way they do to slow them down, to beat them at their own game. We left the game. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. That's kind of inspiring to me. And that's a um. And once again, I mean, this show's not about me. Um, it's about us. And uh, and I think we're doing this together. Uh, I made a note to myself this morning. I actually, made it on my phone Saturday afternoon at the beach. Um, it's rare for one of us to say something um that takes guts because we're concerned about what the consequences may be. 
Um, Larry has a belief system. I have a belief system. You have one. Um, everybody listening to my voice has some, um, I don't know, some belief system of which they try to adhere to the best way they know how. Um, so there's something rambling about in your head. And you believe it needs to be said, spoken. Um, but there's a nervousness we have. That there, There's a concern we have. Let us say it, guys. There's a fear that a lot of you have in expressing things that you believe about the system of government, some of the one-sidedness. And here's the point I've tried to make about America first, because a lot of people argue about, you know, don't light that fuse yet. What are we going to replace it with? I don't care. I mean, it really and truly, I mean, well, I do care. But but I it, I think the, the, the risk of letting things stay as they are far outweighs not knowing what is next. Does that make any sense? I mean, do you believe if Mitch McConnell becomes Senate Majority Leader in 2023 that the country's fundamentally different than if Chuck Schumer is? I mean, okay, we'll win some judgeships. You know, we'll, 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 get, we'll, we'll, we'll stall some legislation. But I think what Larry's talking about, that is the minutia. I mean, we're, you know, um, YouTube or Google kicks us off the platform and we go try to, you know, to, to show our independence. We'll create an alternative. You know, it, you know, kind of a competitive. Well, but what is the option? If well, they I mean, kick I, I, you off, you don't have well, a I mean, voice. I, I, you I, cannot I, argue and convince. I think you've got to you've got to weaponize government to your advantage. I mean, that's what Republicans don't like to hear. Conservatives, by their nature, say, "What? I mean, this guy can't be a conservative." Let me send him these three articles from the National Review of William Buckley, George Will, and Bill Crystal. Those guys have screwed it. This is a fight. This is not a compromise. This is not a moderating debate. This is a war for the heart and soul of this country. And I'm not trying to be provocative nor hyperbolic. The left gets that. The right, uh, the, the, the only people that get it on the right to me are the new right. And I just think you've got to tactically and strategically play the game in a very different sort of way. And because um, nothing's going to change the captive media. Nothing's going to change the monolithic education system unless what? Unless we integrate ourselves into the media. Unless we integrate ourselves into this monolithic education system. Unless we sue Harvard or we sue CNN. Um, you know, I, I remember a while back, I discussed some of the libel laws. And, and every, you know, Republicans were like, well, we don't want to do that. That's not what Republican and conservatives do. We don't seek the government. You know, we don't look at the government for answers. Guys, there is no debate of big and small government. Can we accept that? I mean, that, that train has left the barn. That horse has left the station, right? <laughs> That's intentional. Yep. Um, Rev and I have kind of an inside joke. I get going a million miles an hour, and one day over the air, I said that train, train has, has left, left the barn. barn. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, yeah, the horse has left the station as well. Um, but, but, you know, if we believe that we're going to revolutionize American government— and with Mitch McConnell having any control whatsoever of the political debate, we'll get exactly what we deserve. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. A more serious and cerebral Monday morning show than we normally have. You were ready um, to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. Other than uh, the Phillies and Kyle Larson making me mad over the weekend, because um, the Braves <laughs> had a good weekend, winning two or three against a really good Astro team, nothing to sneeze at. But uh, when one of the better drivers in NASCAR drive into a corner, knowing there's no way in hell he can stop it except run his teammate up into the wall, they're in the wall. And maybe if maybe Larson doesn't do that, if there is a wall there. But I think in his, I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They're all really, really, really good at keeping a uh, an automobile under control. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. 
Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, uh, Franklin said well done is a lot better than well said. And that's the difference between conservatives and Democrats. Conservatives do things. Democrats say things. Just like in this bill they just passed, oh, we're going to reduce prescription drugs for all the seniors. Well, the seniors love that until they read the bill, and it doesn't start until 2026. You know, all the taxes start now, but all the goodies start later on. One of the biggest problems we have right now is the the wagon is full. I think we're about 54% last time I read uh, collecting federal benefits in one. So we're we're over the tipping point as far as uh, people that are taken from the government versus putting into the government. You know, if you need it, I don't have a problem with it. But when I go to a convenience store, you know, they, they accept EBT cards now. And they go in there and they buy all the chips and the snacks and the garbage. And, and they spend about $40 on that and then pull out a wad of cash that will choke a horse and buy $50 worth of scratch-offs and a case of beer. You know, I don't mind helping people when they need help. You know, I'll give them the shirt off my back, but it's, it's an abuse of the system. Trump tried to, to get the government to where it needs to be when he implemented Schedule F. Remember that when he talked about firing the VA people for mistreating the, the veterans? Well, that Schedule F applied to everybody in the executive branch, that if you're not doing a good job, you can be fired. Well, the first thing Biden did when he came into office is he rescinded that. So that just tells you the mindset of what we're dealing with. And no, you don't have to convince me to be skeptical of government. I spent 26 years in the military. I was skeptical the whole time I was in it. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. See, I believe the fight is better if we don't use the word conservative. I mean, I really believe that. I think conservatism is such an old word. I mean, I get the nature of it. I mean, I understand what conservative and liberal mean. Uh, but then you get to neoclassical liberalism. I just think conservatism is a George Will, William Buckley, George W. Bush, uh, Dick Cheney kind of word. And I don't think people who are America firsters have much of an interest in that. Uh, Joe said something, and theoretically he's right. Conservatives do things. What did the conservatives do? I mean, they endorsed globalism, interventionism. They legitimized China. Who was president when China became a member of the World Trade Organization? There's no way in Hades that China becomes a member of the WTO unless America says it's okay. Who was the president? Some crazy Democrat? No, it was George W. Bush. You see where I'm headed? I just think the fight is going to be, our, our, our chance of winning is going to be much better if we leave and check conservatism at the door as a political descript. I mean, it can be, uh, I mean, I understand the theory of conservatism, and I think the advancement of conservatism is in America's best interest, but, but to me, there has to be a reinvigorating of what it is we're fighting for. J.D. Vance may or may not be a conservative. I mean, there's no doubt he's an America firster. Is, is banishing China from the World Trade Organization um, conservative? Is, is nativism or nationalism conservative? No. I mean, I don't think they are, but it's an ideology. I mean, it's America first. I mean, every 
policy decision we make, advance, advocate on behalf of, is going to not be based on liberal or conservative. Is it good or not for the American people? I mean, this is a government that serves the public. Is this policy, is this legislation going to better the lives of the average American citizen? That's what I'm about. That's what J.D. Vance needs to be about and Blake Masters needs to be about. Mitch McConnell's already convinced you he's not about that. I mean, he's not going to be about that. McConnell would rather not be majority leader than this party kind of redefine itself as who it was and what it is. And I just think you've got to fight in a different sort of, um, I don't want to say conservatism is so 80s, but it kind of is. I mean, as, as a political word, as something that, you know, I'm a conservative warrior. No, I'm an America firster. I don't, I don't give a damn how conservative it is. Is it good for the American people or not? And I think the one thing that, that a lot of us has to come to grips with, are we going to weaponize government or not? There's 75 million of us. I mean, there's probably 100 million of us, but there's 75 million who are willing to go vote for this crazy guy, right? Cheeto Jesus. I mean, we, I'm not afraid. I'll do it. May not tell people, may tell people, but I'll do it. I mean, if we gave a dollar, that's $75 million a year. $2 is $150 million a year. I mean, why don't we raise a billion bucks a year and just fight them on their terms? That's kind of the argument I'm trying to make. Why try to make it about, you know, an ideological war? No, I mean, accept the game is where it is and, and engage. And, I mean, if money's the mother's milk in American politics, then, then make contributions. But don't make it to Mitch McConnell and the Senatorial Republican Committee who says to Blake Masters, you're down six in the poll. Uh, we're going to cut spending in Arizona by $3.5 million. They're not doing it because he's down six. If you're down six in a swing state, you should increase spending by $3.5 right. million. But McConnell doesn't want that, guys. That's what we got to so understand. So he'd rather have Mark Kelly than Blake Masters, you think? McConnell would? <laughs> I mean, that's hard for me to believe. But no, I mean, I, I think you're, yeah. I mean, I think he would rather have, he would rather the Republican Party not end up in the hands of America Firsters. Hmm. And every time an America Firster wins a seat, he becomes a declining, uh, you know, I mean, his, his value declines in kind of a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Masters wins, McConnell becomes less relevant. Masters and Vance win. McConnell's relevancy decreases even more. Uh, next thing you know, Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, um, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters win, and, and McConnell's kind of relegated um, to, to a, a secondary role in the Republican Party. And I think his loyalties are not to the American people. They're to the establishment. I mean, he's an establishment Republican. I, I go back to what I said earlier. When Liz Cheney says that I'm for liberties and freedoms and the advancement of the Constitution and preserving the Republic, that's not what she's saying. Liz Cheney is saying, I am a globalist. I'm an interventionist. I'm an open border Republican. And the globalist interventionist movement has said, okay, there's this element within the Republican Party that may give us some heartburn. Let's start giving Democrats money. I mean, the globalist corporations, they aren't interested in conservative or liberal, right? I mean, they want what they want. They're the transactional political business. So, um, when Liz, I mean, you got to listen to what Liz Cheney says. There's not a conservative bone in her body. Liz Cheney's not for limited government. Liz Cheney, the Cheneys have never been for limited government. Liz Cheney is for what is in the Cheney family name's best interest. She's showing you that right now. She says that the, the people who want to redefine the Republican Party are vile and wicked 
and nasty and must be, you know, she's going to campaign against America First Republicans. Now, give her a little credit. She's woman enough to say that. McConnell hadn't said that yet. His actions say that. But, but that, that's where we are, Rev. So not only are we dealing with the Democrat liberal agenda, we're also dealing with about 20% of our party who would rather would rather the Democrats be in charge than the Republicans. And the reason they can get there, they've never been a Republican anyway. The Republican was the apparatus. It was the vessel, the vehicle of which the globalist agenda could be advanced. The interventionist agenda could be advanced. The open border agenda could be advanced. Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell and the Bushes and the Romneys and, and the McCain, they've never been conservative. They've never been for limited government. They said those things because that's what you say to win Republican primaries. That's what the Republican primary voter wanted. And when you cast a ballot for Mitt Romney, you've made, maybe you thought, I never did, but maybe you thought you were voting for someone who was going to put the American people first. But, but the, the globalists saw... Um, a change in the the way the Republican Party was operating, so they just—I mean—they just moved, and now they're the biggest donors of the Democrats. So this is—I mean, yeah, it's an ideological war, but this is only follow the money. Once again, why did um, Liz Cheney get elected? Why, why did Dick Cheney get elected? But because they did what uh, it was—it was what the corporate interests needed done in the name of a military-industrial complex, American imperialism. You know, take your choice. Liz Cheney has never been a limited government conservative. Liz Cheney has always been an interventionist, a globalist, uh, a status quo Republican. And now, you know, the voters change. And I'm going to tell you, insulting the voter is never a good strategy. I mean, it's, it's beyond belief that she would be so insulting to the people. In other words, um, you were stupid enough to vote for me all those years. I told you were conservative. Once you figured me out, now you're vile. You know, I mean, Liz Cheney knows how stupid we were all those years in voting for them and her ilk and believing that they had some conservative uh, bias about them. Nah, you know, I've always known that. Uh, but I'm a little bit more of an insider than the majority. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. I, I hate to tell you, but uh, Larry's uh, pretty much got that right. I mean, I miss Rush Limbaugh. But he was a great entertainer. He had a way of articulating things that was entertaining and amusing and insightful at the same time. But I don't know if he was a good evangelist for uh, our cause. I, he he had some con- converts, but I don't. We didn't have enough, and the uh, situation changed under our feet. Like you keep talking about, well, if somebody's coming after you with a knife, you got to pick up that Pepsi bottle. Well, I hate to tell you, Ken, but uh, you pick up a Pepsi bottle and you've got a piece of plastic right now these days. So you better find something else, a handful of dirt or a, a, a plank or a box or something to uh, throw in there. And it, it, the battleground has changed, and they're changing it as quick as we can. And the thing about it is people are easily distracted, and they can't think about more than one thing at a time. And every time we get focused on something, they say, oh, look at that squirrel with his tail on fire running up the tree over there. And everybody looks at that, and then they pass like this ridiculous bill that they did, which is just is even worse than the shovel-ready bill that Obama passed uh, years ago. But uh, I, I 
don't know how you stop it except at the grassroots level, and it's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of local people to uh, contain this thing because I am pretty sure that they're they're printing up ballots and getting uh, a delivery system set up right now in these the swing state states to try and get uh, extra votes on the on the uh, roll, and I and uh, it's it's just a, a pitiful situation that we've allowed it to get this far, but uh, there you're right. Uh, politics is not uh, by the rules game. It's what there are no rules. Your daddy had that right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, my father said, <laughs> you know, hey, you're getting in a world now where there are no rules. If there are no rules, you better play by the rules better than anybody else. And that that's the point I'm trying to make. We get real bogged down on you know this piece of legislation. And I and I get it. I mean, we're a nation of laws, and laws have impact and effect. This is a conscious issue. I mean, this is a th- this is much bigger than whether or not we vote to fund a government program. I mean, this is a mindset we're dealing with. And once again, the best um, descriptor, uh, the cathedral is what so is. I mean, to me, it's it's fascinating. You you may find it boring and a little bit ambiguous, and I don't understand what. I mean, I mean the guy on the radio saying something about a damn cathedral. I mean, I thought that was a you know a church. You know, at a big bummy. Well, I think if you dig into that, and and maybe that's the problem. You know, I had lunch Friday with a couple of political friends of mine, and we went over uh, some of the content of last week's show. Um, the percentage of Americans who are deep thinkers. You know what they believed it was, and these are competent guys. I mean, these are all people who've been moderately successful in different walks of life. You know what they believed it was? Somewhere between three and five percent. I mean, they're basically saying ninety-seven, ninety-five to ninety-seven percent of Americans either don't have an interest or incapable of deep thinking. This is a deep thinking issue. This is not, hey, what do you like about this policy or not? Hey, do you know we're selling? Um, we're going to hire 87,000 people to the IRS? What has gotten us to a place where a political party can look the public in the eye and say, we're going to hire 87 new IRS, 87,000 new IRS agents, but you don't have anything to worry about? And 50% of the country believe that. You see that that that's the consciousness of this. I mean that that is so much deeper and more bothering to me. It doesn't. I mean it doesn't surprise me that that a big government political party wants to hire more bureaucrats to to I, I don't know Rev um hell hack, you know the general public, but it does bother me that the general public, fifty percent of us take them at their word. It's almost like um. You know, your husband comes home smelling like women's perfume, lipstick on his neck, but he said he was at the um he said it was at the ball game. Said he went with a few buddies. Okay, well I mean he wouldn't lie to me. I mean, of course. I mean he's a good husband. We've been married twenty five years. I mean he's you know, he provides well and he loves the kids and I mean I believe him. What's that lipstick and that perfume and smells like beer a little bit, but I mean he said he's at the ball game. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, how how blind how blindly loyal or stupid or uncurious and in, un, in, unserious. There's the word I use a lot. We are a very unserious people. If 50% of this nation believe that the federal government is going to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, but the American working class has nothing to worry about, and that's kind of, sort of, where we are. Take a break. Back in a minute. Got a big surprise for you this Monday morning. Been uh, kind of communicating with Kahaley this morning from Trafalgar. He's a senior pollster at Trafalgar. They've got new polls being released 
every day from Nevada, from Arizona, from Pennsylvania, from Georgia. Robert will be with us at 8.05. So senior pollster from Trafalgar will be with us at 8.05 this morning. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Morning, guys. Uh, I have a philosophical comment here. Um, You've been saying that the government... uh, uh, is uh, that we we need to treat the the left wing the way they've been treating us, you know, uh, pull out all stops, you know, do anything, um, use the government to, against them the way they use it against us, etc. Uh, but the the way I see it, the reason they are so uh, so vicious is because they're <clears throat> they're um, Worldview or their their confidence in the world is unraveling. Um, you know they 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 are in trouble and and they know that their thing is has not worked and what I would call the secular humanistic view of the world, uh, which is which is still in some quarters the respectable you know intellectual viewpoint and. Uh, and so they're they're seeing that is is in trouble. It's it's falling apart on them, and uh, that's why they are so vicious to uh, attack their critics and pull out all the stops and use you know the media and everything else to try to silence their critics. But that doesn't mean. I mean, my, my question is, why do we have to play the same game plan they use? Uh, I think that. Um, we need to we need to follow a more Christian game plan, you know, which which is not mean, not um, not uh, doing everything, uh, not not playing dirty with them. And uh, um, there is a there is a reason why it says in in uh, the Bible that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You know, this is a uh, there's a lot of deep stuff going on here. Well, I'll let it go at that. Thank you, Simon. That's kind of an interesting. I mean, to me, to make it um, theological is a very serious argument to make. Um, you know, Lincoln said when someone said, "You know, I hope we're on God. I hope God's on our team, and I hope we're with God." He said, "You better hope. No, I hope God's with us." And he said, "You better hope you're with God." I mean, that's what Sam's inferring there, and um, and yeah, I mean, I, I believe the great line of demarcation will be the secularist humanistic worldview and those who have a faith a spiritual belief and a higher power um that god ultimately will decide what the fate and future of the planet he created is but i think he's encouraged us to be active participants and i think at times we've got to i mean i struggle with this i mean i, I don't want to fight them at their game i mean i would much rather sit at a at a table to debate the good government the bad government the big government the small government low taxes high taxes i mean i would much rather do that I would much rather to not have this captive media and this this monolithic educational system in America, but but I think I've been forced, Sam. I mean, as a as a God fearing Christian who likes to anchor his life in those philosophies and those beliefs, um, and tries his dead level best to live according to that. And when I fail, I know I fail. I mean, I, you know, it's it's evident to me when I fail to live up or adhere to those values and uh, and the promise of God. Um, but but I, I just wonder, and this is a great humanistic struggle. 
you know, as a, as a believer in God, how far is too far? I mean, if the, if the radical left, and once again, I'm being a bit but hyper. if you keep losing these battles, eventually you're going to lose the war. Well, I mean, do, do you, is there any chance that good loses the war? I mean, good loses the battle, but is there any chance? I mean, if you believe in redemption, you believe in, in the second coming, the rapture, you know, that, that God will make all things right in the end, is there any way we lose? I mean, yeah, you lose battle after battle after battle after battle, but in the end, I mean, if you believe in the Bible, you know, God wins the war. You know, you and I don't. God wins the war and righteousness prevails, um, but it's real hard. I'm not God. You know, I don't have right. the, uh, the the infinite intellectual horsepower of an almighty. I'm not omnipotent or omnipresent. I'm not sovereign. I'm a, I'm a dude doing the best I can to make his way. And I feel burdened right now by the way the country is going. And I feel an obligation. And, and I'll tell Sam this, and I'll tell you this. I am very comfortable in being a bit unchristian-like right now. I mean, I know what Christian values are. I know what they're predicated upon, but right now, in this moment, I am extremely comfortable in an eye for an eye. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Hold the phones just a second. Robert Cahaley, senior pollster at Trafalgar, Trafalgar, Robert. Pronounce it correctly for me. Trafalgar. Okay. I thought my, my daughter corrected me one day when I said Trafalgar. She said, no, it's Trafalgar. Um, Robert, our listenership is in a tizzy. They've heard Mitch McConnell talk about how unlikely it is <laughs> that the Republicans take over the Senate. Um, I wanted you to come on and express as a uh, kind of an honest observer and someone who is um, who, who paid to give accurate information to the candidates, parties, and campaigns. Where exactly are we, from your perspective, via your data or per your data, on the United States Senate and the 2022 midterms? All right, well, I'm going to start with one small thing. We actually don't work for campaigns. Um, most most of uh, our, I would say, our clients are, are businesses, um, political organizations that are not campaigns and high net worth individuals who just want honest numbers without the spin of a campaign or a party on it. Um, but no, the answer to your question is uh, Mitch McConnell is very concerned about four or five Trump, pro-Trump candidates uh, winning the Senate who've all declared they won't vote for him. Uh, his odds of remaining minority leader are a lot better if they lose than his odds of being majority leader if they win, and he knows that. And so he's kind of poor mouth, and, uh but the fact is, uh, you know, when he says things like, you know, better candidates, well, you know, when you look at candidates, there's a lot of things to judge by, political experience. I mean, I, I'll use, for example, Pennsylvania. You know, he might think McCormick was a better candidate than Oz, but McCormick was very vulnerable in China, and that is a bipartisan thing, and it would have been devastating in the fall. Dr. Oz still has a huge advantage uh, with a lot of these uh folks that have seen him on TV and grown to like him. And those are very hard voters to measure. And our most recent survey, we found that among the least likely voters, Oz had a 72 to 28 margin. So I think his ability to affect who votes in that election will, will uh, serve him well. And the fact is Fetterman's been out of pocket now for three months with a stroke. And you really can't beat up on a guy who's out of pocket with a stroke. Uh, so, 
Oz has been getting pounded on. Nobody's touched Fetterman, and Oz is only five points behind. So I don't think that's that devastating. Uh, we'll put, put out, out numbers in Pennsylvania, I mean, excuse me, Ohio uh, today, and I don't think, I think you'll notice that Ohio doesn't seem to be so bad. Uh, Nevada looks pretty good. Uh, certainly, uh, Georgia and uh, Arizona are, are going to be problems. But the fact is, in Georgia, what we find is most of the people who say they're undecided uh, also have to be uh, very uh, negative or, excuse me, uh, disapprove or strongly disapprove of Biden. They're not going to break for Warnock. It's just not going to happen. They're just not comfortable saying they're for Walker all the stuff they're seeing. But McConnell doesn't want these guys to win. He wants people that are of his ilk to win. And we have total dysfunction. I mean, you've got the Senate uh, campaign committee and the, the uh, minority leader not actually singing up the same song sheet. And so there's a lot of things going on. I mean, and there are a lot of Republicans who agree it is time for a new leader. Uh, this guy is not invested in winning. He wasn't invested in winning in Georgia. His people put out lackluster crap. I mean, they even ran an ad, I swear, I'm not kidding, in Georgia with Mitch McConnell talking. They paid for that uh, in the Senate runoff in Georgia. I mean, these guys don't have a clue. Robert, what percentage of the voters are opposed to America first? When Liz Cheney says the crazies and the, you know, the vile and wicked, um, she gets 26% of the vote. And I understand some of that was crossover in Wyoming, but what percentage of Republican voters just will not vote for a Herschel Walker, a Blake Masters, a Dr. Oz, or a J.D. Vance? Well, certainly not a majority. I mean, it's certainly not a majority in those states. I mean, if you, if you figure 20, 2020, forget about all the, all the questions about what or did it didn't happen. It was an extremely close race, extremely close race. I mean, even the popular vote was extremely close, much closer than usual. So that's a perfect now that's nationally so imagine in a state that leans a little bit to the right it's over 50 percent that voted for trump so think about the fact that in a lot of these states you you've had that kind that kind of vote in the general election now this is a, a midterm so it's all about turnout what we what everybody knew we, we studied in virginia in virginia there were tons of people who had never voted in a state election, but voted in presidential elections. And so the goal was to take people who don't usually vote in those and to get them to vote in an election they, they're not used to voting in. And the goal here, of course, is to take people who are not used to voting in midterms, who are just pretty much presidential year voters, and turn them out. So either party, e- either, either candidate can have a majority because they're just a majority in both scenarios. So it really is a turnout game. It is a motivation game. And you don't get Republicans to sit home when you put a raid on Donald Trump's house. Having said that, uh, two of the fundamentals, and I guess I learned this from you, um, two of the fundamentals that I pay close attention to are right track, wrong track, and the approval rating of the president of the United States uh, of the similar party. So Biden's approvals are in the 30s. Wrong track is about 71 to 3%. Why are we still in hotly contested races? In other words, why is there not more wind in the sail of the Republican candidates running for Senate in some of these swing states? The macro says they should be leading, but they're not. Well, but let's consider why they're not leading. 
I mean, I th- our, you know, I can't d- say too much about the polls coming out today, other than JD Vance is going to be in first. I- I'm not going to re- tell you the details because we're saving it for a big release. But so, but what happens is if you look at some of these polling averages, honest people who do not have are not pushing one way or the other, like us, are being competed with by liberal universities and polls funded by news organizations. That is, So you add five of them and then two of us telling the truth, it's going to skew. Remember, we were the ones who said that Trump would just barely lose Wisconsin and ABC Washington Post said he'd lose by 12 points. I mean, the thing is, these guys have been so wrong. I sent somebody something last night, a, a Fox News screenshot. Fox News, based on their polling, said a or 89% chance North Carolina was going to Biden. Screenshot. Honestly, I took it myself. But it was based on the crappy polling. These guys, I've looked at a bunch of these polls, and I'm, it, it's not rocket science. The, these things, I saw one yesterday, 46 questions. Average people don't answer long polls, people who care too much. I saw another statewide poll. It doesn't even matter what state. 50% of the people who answered the poll had a college degree or a graduate degree or a postgraduate degree. There ain't a state in America, that, that, that even Connecticut, that has that kind of turnout, uh, that uh, half the voters are, are college graduates or better. That's just crap. But that is an accurate representation of the kind of people who would answer a 35-question survey. And that in, in that particular instance, these guys do not – they cannot concede that the day and age you can ask these long polls are gone. The most recent Fox News poll, all live callers to registered not likely voters. Tell me how many millennials and Gen Zs, average ones, who answered the live phone. Do you know somebody who answers a phone, the people they don't know? How weird a millennial or Gen Z do you have to be to participate in that poll? It's why is your methodology poll. better? Why 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 have you proven to be simple. more trustworthy? It's just you know what you always talk about is simple country stupid. It's recognizing how people really are, and and taking all these blinders and all uh, all your pseudoscience and, and telling me all this nonsense. The fact is, people are busy, and working people are busy than not working people, and they don't think about politics every day. And the number one question they will ask you is. How long is this going to take? And if you're answering, oh, two minutes, oh, it's just three questions, just five questions, their average people are going to hang up. And then you're going to get the people who are one, too far on the right, two, too far on the left, or three, worst of all, bored and want somebody to talk to you. Uh, let me ask you this. You're not getting accuracy. On this show, and I'm throwing a lot at you, but I appreciate it. I know it's, it's early for a political consultant. It's not early for a radio <laughs> show host. It's very <laughs> early for a pollster or a political consultant. Um, yeah, Robert doesn't normally you know, get, get up and moving this early in the morning. Um, but I want to ask you this. I only sent out two tweets. I don't want to hear it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, good deal. All right. So, so you said over our airwaves before the 2020 election that Trump was going to win Pennsylvania, but he may not win it by enough to to beat some of the cheating that was going to happen in Philadelphia and some of the major, some of the other heavily Democratic precincts. When you look at Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, we've got hotly contested Senate races. Have those states addressed in this midterm what we believe happened in the 2020 presidential? 
Yes and no. First, a lot the Republicans got wise to a lot of what happened. And what you saw in Virginia was kind of a grass, I mean, not, not grassroots, but like a trial run of some new ideas about how to poll watch and how, how to kind of hold people accountable. So they're going to do a better job of holding people accountable. Um, also, Arizona, for example, Arizona legislature did pass some election reform and Arizona after what they've gone through and all the fighting back and forth, it's almost like nobody wants to go through that again. So people are going to do a lot better job of being uh, more accountable. Georgia, uh, one of the biggest problems in Georgia was very simply uh, these drop boxes uh, and, and unsolicited absentee ballots. Uh, the law in Georgia has changed. You're going to have to put some kind of identification on the outside. They're going to be required to count it. And, the chief guy who was in the way of actually enforcing Georgia law, the governor is now on the ballot and he's all about enforcing the election law this time. <laughs> so uh, I, I think, I think it will be better. Wisconsin um, does worry me because I haven't seen any, anything changing in Wisconsin. And, um, and they're certainly setting up again with all the nonsense about Ron Johnson losing and all this stuff. But again, it's because, if you look at these polling edge averages, there are four or five, and then there are like three or four of us out there that that make the polling averages. I mean, me, uh, Insider Advantage, you know, Rasmussen, and then you know, and a couple of, and that's it. And so, if one, you know, we're not in one of these places, they're just going to skew the whole thing. I mean, they really would have you believe in JD Vance is going to lose in Ohio? Who are you kidding? Well, I mean, they even have Rubio behind in Florida. I mean, that can't be the case. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I haven't done nor I do a poll in Florida because there ain't no Republican going to lose in Florida. Interesting. You heard it, it first. my time. That, that's kind of an interesting. Okay, you said you, you provide accurate information to wealthy corporations and business people who are willing to pay for no, it. No, corporations and wealthy people. Okay, fair, fair enough. <laughs> right, let me ask you this. Most of my listeners are not wealthy people, but they want desperately Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, J.D. Vance to win. If somebody's got a hundred bucks, does it matter if a bunch of people send J.D. Vance 25 bucks, Herschel Walker 25, Oz 25, and J.D. Vance? I mean, is that something, when you look at the, the millions and billions spent on American politics today, and someone, you know, doesn't have that sort of money, does it still matter that people commit and become shareholders of campaigns all over the country because we share a similar political mindset? I, I think, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's good to give them money. I've got my problems with the consulting class and how the money's spent. Um, I do know that if you want to give it to, to save America or something involved with Trump, then he'll probably put it in a pack and do a better job spending it to help win than you would if you gave it directly to the campaign. But for Lord's sake, don't give it anything with any Republican Party, NRS, don't give it any of that because it's just wasted. Uh, last last question. Appreciate your time. Robert Cahaley, senior pollster at the Trafalgar Group. Um, will Trump at the end financially contribute to the Trump-like candidates that, that McConnell calls, you know, um, imperfect candidates and flawed candidates? In other words, I mean, my personal opinion, if Trump endorsed and brought them to the altar, he can't leave them there. 
Save America has a lot of money to spend on politics. Will they or will they not invest in these candidates? And are they now? We just don't know about it. Well, he's, first of all, he, he has already invested significant money in helping Oz win. Uh, uh, he's significant money in uh, um, in uh, Georgia, uh, significant money in a few of these these particular races in the primaries. I mean, he even put you know m- money into make, helping Fry. I mean, very important. I mean, now now Fry did a phenomenal job raising money. Probably the best Trump endorsed candidate taking the reins and raising his own money that I saw on the field this year. And they did, Fry deserves credit for that. They did an incredible job. Um, but no, so he invested in the primary. So I have every reason to believe. I mean, he's going. He's not only is he not giving up on he's going to Pennsylvania on the third. They just announced that on September third to do a rally. I mean, you know, let McConnell step back. Somebody listen. There are a lot of great people who would who, who would be who'd be good majority leaders. Some of them might even live in South Carolina. The fact is, um, there's some there's some movement that's on the ground. And if McConnell's going to leave them on the vibe, somebody people are going to help them. I mean, Peter Thiel's gotten very involved in these races and helped one, two of these primaries. They're not, they're not going to leave these guys out there. Uh, you know, candidates have trouble all the time. There are candidates with flaws. And, you know, every, every flaw Herschel Walker has, he wrote about in his own book. He never lied about anything. But, you know, and, and the fact is they, put, they pushed this mental health issue a little bit hard, and I think it's going to slap back at them. But, I mean, they, these are good candidates. Uh, they, they, they've they've – fought some very uh, desperate primaries and um, you know, Republicans kind of get that. Oh, my guy didn't win. Well, you know, maybe I'm not going to, but you know, they say all that. It's like your buddy said, he's going to, you know, he's giving up on girls, you know, in six weeks, all right, fine. You know, this woman broke my heart, but now I'm back in it. Republicans are the same way. They're going to come back and they're going to say, all right, you know what? That wasn't my guy, but I'm, you know, I'm not voting for Fetterman. I'm voting for Warnock. (laughs) They just—they're not going to end up doing it. So yes, I think Trump will be behind him. Uh, I, I think he'll make his presence known uh, directly, indirectly, and um, and help him gather up some media because there's nothing like—it's it, not even about the, the the crowd that shows up. It's the local news, earned media that a Trump rally brings. You you guys saw it firsthand in Florence. Every one of your stations was talking about it for days. That is, that's money. That's the best media because more people watch it. People watch their local news because they care about their local world. And a lot of people are tuning out cable news and, you know, they're streaming everything and not even watching the big networks. Well explained. Thank you very much, Robert Cahaley, senior pollster at the Trafalgar Group. Um, Hope to have you back on soon. Thank you a lot, Robert. Sounds good. Y'all have a good day. Do the same. We'll take a break. We'll be back. In just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. I can't tell you how much I enjoy those interviews when Robert Haley calls in. Because you truly have an expert on the phone. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you got somebody who is um, preeminent. I like using that word, preeminent. <laughs> Well, um, and he's the same, same Robert Cahaley you see wearing a bow tie when he gets interviewed. Squinting his eyes because he can't see real good. He's Robert's unlike- had a lot of issues with his eyesight. Um, I could tell a story on Cahaley, but he wouldn't want it told. He and I were together um, cutting a television ad of mine at a local business here. And um, you know how when you don't really know where you are, but you're embarrassed to say, I don't know where I am. 
Well, combine that with you can't see worth two cents. Robert had just gotten some some eye surgery, and he's always had an issue with his eyesight. So Robert is walking around aimlessly um, in a very dangerous manufacturing plant. And um, <laughs> anyway, I mean, it, it would be uh, not an embarrassing story by any stretch. But Robert and I created a dear friendship during um, my political life. And um, I'll never forget we met at Lizard's Thicket in Columbia. Uh, when I was kind of a um, a no-name from nowhere, still kind of a no-name from nowhere, but pursuing the second highest office in the state and needed, I kind of wanted a, a renegade uh, running my campaign, and Robert was making a name for himself with a company called Gazdit and Green, and Robert became my consultant. Uh, we won that race and kind of went through the, the dark side of politics together, not so uh, pleasant an experience when you're uh, when they're trying to run you out of town, it is never much fun. Mm-hmm. But um, we've really maintained uh, a very cordial and respectful friendship. Not relationship, but a friendship. And um, my daughter did this summer a paid internship with Trafalgar. And um, the first thing she made, it's kind of interesting, before Robert sent her any kind of um, like Social Security number and all this was a yeah, kind of a non-disclosure. You know, let's make oh, sure yeah. he lives I in a, um, well, I mean, the political world rough and tumble. And he is as rough and tumbly uh, as they come. But and the such you, a you capable get, person. You can get him to come on this show because he's got national media outlets calling him all the time to appear. I mean, I see him on Hannity's show. and but, but let me tell you something about Robert. Robert understands that I have a, a certain connectivity and relatability with, with Joe Sixpack. I mean, it's where I come from. It's who I am. I don't make any apologies for that. I'm not a sophisticated man. I'm not a guy, probably a complicated man. I'm sure he man. likes to hear well, I mean, what our listeners are on these issues. He says, hey, man, the numbers say this. What do you feel? What do you sense about this data I've got? We just polled Ohio. Uh, here's what the data says. But but you kind of guy on the street. What do you sense about that? And I'll say, I don't buy it, Robert, or I do buy it. You know what I mean? And we'll kind of have these back and forths. And, and yeah, I mean, my information, I think, is valuable to him. And his data is obviously uh, very valuable to me. Um, talking about relationships, there is a strained relationship in Hendrick Motorsports that I think is good for the sport. Um, Kyle Larson and Chase Elliott had a kind of, kind of an incident yesterday in Watkins Glen. Um, they're not nemesis. They're not arch rivals. They're teammates with the preeminent NASCAR team in America today. And I got to believe that Kerry Tharp, president of Darlington Racetrack, is kind of um, smiling beneath that um <laughs> beneath that exterior by knowing that when two heavyweights and superstars of the sport have some sort of controversy it's always good for the ensuing dates darlington in a couple of weeks carries with us this morning uh good morning carrie how are you i'm doing good ken and you're right uh the more uh a little bit of a controversy stir up that we have the better off i like it and and certainly yesterday uh, uh kyle larson kind of moved his teammate Chase Elliott out of the way, but hey, it's racing. It's a contact sport. This isn't ballroom dancing, and so uh, I had no issue with that. In fact, I liked it, and uh, I hope there's even more of that this week at Daytona. But, Kerry, there's the old saying, you know it and I know it, I race you how you race me, and if you race me clean, I race you clean. If you rough me right. up, then, you know, a couple of weeks down the road, I may have to rough you up a bit, and a couple of weeks down the road, we got Daytona this Saturday night, that is the last race of who gets in the playoffs and not, and then Darlington Labor Day weekend, the first race of the playoff, and that may be the race that these guys begin settling some of these scores, Kerry, and that's got to excite you. It does, and certainly the one that comes to mind is Ross Chastain to Denny Hamlin. They've been going at it for about four or five months, actually, most of the season, 
And, uh, you know, Chastain, uh, I don't think he's met a, a car he doesn't mind running over. And, uh, so, you know, I don't have any issue with that either. I, I think he's just a hard racer. He's, uh, you know, in the best equipment that he's ever been in. And so maybe he's got to kind of get, uh, kind of get in touch with all that. But yeah, uh, Ken, I, and you know, as good as anybody, I think the, the, the NASCAR, uh, uh feeds off of this type of, uh, uh, excitement, this type of, uh, I don't know if I call it rivalry or not on the teammates, but certainly the, these types of incidents, I think, uh, stir up good water cooler conversation. And, and certainly uh, people want to start watching maybe even a little bit more, whether in person or uh, TV or on the radio. And, Kerry, the truth is, I mean, what happens in Daytona between Larson and Elliott doesn't change much. What happens right. in Darlington changes a lot. That's why I think right. there's so much intrigue in Darlington being one of the races because we've got kind of an elimination. Explain how this works and why Darlington is so important. I know, you know, but if a lot of our listeners right. may not. Yeah, well, let's see. Uh, opening round of the uh, Cup Series playoffs, and there'll be 16 drivers that uh, will compete for a championship uh, starting in Darlington on uh, on September the 4th. And uh, if you win that re- opening race at Darlington, you automatically advance to the next round. Uh, there's there's three rounds of, uh, of three races apiece. And then in November, the uh, uh, season wraps up uh, with the finale, the championship uh, run there at Phoenix. And so uh, the name of the game when you get into the playoffs is to win, baby. And so uh, there's going to be – I think a lot of things done, uh, you know, I think the, there, there's going to be throwing caution to the wind, so to speak, uh, to see that you go out there and get that first win. Because once you win at Darlington, that means you've automatically advanced to the next round. Kerry, there's a, I mean, you, you and I have had this discussion over the air, off the air, about the crossroads that NASCAR found, its, uh, found itself at years ago. But, but the one consistent has been Darlington. Um, you look at North Wilkesboro, and you look at Rockingham, and some of the storied and traditional tracks, and you look at Chicagoland and, and Texas, some of the places they try to grow the sport. The one consistent has been Darlington. It's kind of like the convergence of what was, what is, and what always will be. And that's why I'm so proud to be a native of this area and, and, and want to encourage the, the, the fellows who, or excuse me, the men and women who share that love of this area to make sure Darlington maintains its relevance, its standing in in NASCAR. How are ticket sales? Um, how can we make sure when the bright lights in two weeks shine on Darlington that there's a, that there's a big crowd there? Well, Ken, I think you said it very well. I think Darlington has withstood the test of time. This would be the 73rd running of the Cookout Southern 500 on September 4th. That's a long time uh, to be running consecutive races at the same racetrack. And yeah, we lost our second race date there for about 18 years, but we've got it back for now. And uh, we need to pack the stands uh, uh, this Labor Day race weekend. And I think we're going to have a pretty good crowd. Our ticket sales are going real well the last four or five weeks. But you can never sell enough tickets. And so I encourage our fans to come out, support this race. Uh, let's show everyone, not only at NASCAR, but the nation, that we can uh, support two races. I think we can. And, uh, you know, get on that website at DarlingtonRaceway.com, or you can call 866-459-7223. There are tickets available. But I tell you what, they're going pretty fast. We're selling a good many tickets each and every day. And uh, I think we're going to have a real nice crowd. Uh, come September 4th. And I want to get back to something you said, Kerry. Last question or last point I want to make, and I'll give you last word. 
Uh, if you're an investor in this local economy, there's one thing better than a big race in Labor Day, and that's a big race in Labor Day and another race to go along with it. The economic impact of this state is monumental. This area in particular, NASCAR is looking around at what to do next year, year after, and the following years. And as Kerry said, a big crowd Labor Day weekend, one of the iconic races in NASCAR history, may encourage them when they start putting schedules together in the future to consider giving Darlington a second race. There are no guarantees, but there's certainly, we increase the likelihood, Kerry, if we have a huge crowd and and make a good show or put on a good show. I know the racetrack will, no doubt about that, and I know you'll have the racetrack in spectacular shape, but but the the crowd and attendance will send a, a kind of a message loud and clearly to NASCAR. That's exactly right, Ken. And the schedules are made from year to year. And uh, so there's no guarantees, like you said. The economic impact is, is pretty significant. Just for one race alone, it was around $65 million, uh, for the state. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you figure for, for two races, it's probably north of $110 million, uh, direct and, e- uh, and indirect economic impact. And the vast majority of that, Ken, stays in the PD region, probably upwards of $90 million of direct and economic impact in the PD region with the two races. And so uh, that's, a big, that's a big chunk. And, uh, you know, we bring in fans from all 48, uh, about all 48 states. Uh, sometimes we get all 50, uh, about 10 foreign countries. Uh, so we get people from all over the world to come in this part of the state, spend four or five days. And uh, it's a big shot in the arm for the tourism in this state. But, yeah, we – we need to show the world that Darlington is uh, is going to be able to support two races. Like I said earlier, I think we can. But having a big crowd pack the stands on Labor Day goes a long way in assuring that in the future. And once again, the number, the the website, how can someone today, tomorrow, or the next purchase tickets? Yeah, yeah the website is DarlingtonRaceway.com, and it'll lead you straight to our ticket links. Uh, the phone number is 866. 866- four five nine seven two two three and somebody will answer that phone and get you squared away and i encourage fans to do that right now Kerry, thank you very much we're going to put that number up on our our facebook page and i wish you nothing but the best appreciate all the work you do okay thanks ken i appreciate y'all thank you very much Kerry tharp president of darlington raceway and i gotta believe there's a little drama there's always um there's always drama listen if you followed racing as long as i has or have somebody's always mad with somebody else it's just not normally teammates especially two high profile teammates like chase elliott and kyle larson um i mean i think larson roughed him up a little bit unnecessarily but i get it you know i get it and uh, and once again there's an old saying in racing um i race you like you race me you know you rough <laughs> me up driving and, to win and and you know and who knows we may our paths may cross again on a racetrack coming uh, near you let's take a break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes takes mondays to make fridays this has been a little bit different monday monday's the day that we kind of grind through four hours of radio rev hadn't paid much attention to the world of politics i haven't paid much attention to politics you, you we hit the ground running you know today. we, we kind of catch a little bit here and a little bit there but i mean i, I really invested a lot of time this weekend um i mean because i'm burdened i mean I, i'm really burdened um by not feeling like i'm winning i mean i, I have such confidence in my ideas, I have such belief in my philosophy, but I feel like I'm losing ground despite having the better ideas, despite believing in the more sound principles and, and philosophies. I still like because of the um, the captive media, the monolithic yeah. educational system. How would you define a win? I mean, what, what would what would three of these you? four senators win? 
if Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, and J.D. Vance, if all four win, that's a grand slam. If three of the four win, that's a really good day for me. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, I, I don't think the word globalist has a, a good enough or a negative enough connotation to it. I think maybe uh, we should call McConnell and Cheney and the rest of them what they really are. Right? Maybe something like Friends of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I, you're witty enough. I think you could probably come up with something uh, pretty pretty good. But uh, maybe, maybe just, you know, we drop the conservative moniker, drop the globalist moniker, and, you know, call them uh you know, Chinese sympathizers, but, but Ken, I think Sherman said it best. I, you know, I hate to credit him with anything because he was, you know, he so burned everything down, war. man. But didn't he say war is hell? Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I understand um, the idea of, of not getting nasty and, and, and not getting your hands dirty. Um, but when you, how, how do you keep a field from burning? Burn it. You know, how do you how do you how do you win a war? You have you have to kill people to win a war when people are killing you. I mean, certainly, we're in a cold civil war, um, and I think I think how we win this um, part of I mean, there's no there's no one little thing that you put your finger on, but I think uh, we need to focus more on school boards and hijacking those and taking those back away from the uh, radical left. Um, I you know I think we need to take back over. Uh, district attorney's offices or solicitor's offices, what we call them here. Um, so I think they're, they're much different ways, but I think we need to not forget about these local races and how much of a difference they make um, in, in changing things, especially when, you know, education is the key. So let's go after education. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. I mean, the first step is it's got to be less rare for someone to say something that took a little guts. I mean, I, you know, I know people that follow me on Facebook, and when I wish my wife a happy anniversary or my kid a happy birthday, it's a million likes. When I say something politically controversial, I know the people <laughs> that wished a happy birthday or a happy anniversary, that they've shared with me their private political opinions, but they won't like it for hell because they right. don't want to be in the middle of that. What we've got to convince people, it's got to become less rare for someone to say something that requires a little bit of guts. You, you can't fear censorship. You can't feel um, ostracized. You can't feel somebody shutting you out. And, but you have to be prepared to respond if somebody does come at you. Well, I mean, Jim said it. you got to be willing to fight. Yeah. I mean, you got to be willing to say, hey, man, I believe in this, and I'm not, I'm not shying away from it. Um, we got to get there first. I mean, I, you you, you got to believe and speak something before you act upon it, right? I mean, we won't even say these things. Um, the, the, the the quiet Trump voter. I mean, they're not so quiet now because they feel like they've been a bit redeemed by how bad Biden is at this, despite what the captive media says, corporate media. Um, I mean, we know. I saw this weekend where Cabbage Patch, the cute little Cabbage Patch fella yeah. on um, CNN He's lost done. his job. Yep. Yeah. Gone. Um, um, but because CNN is um, saying or professing to turn into a less radical and, uh, and biased news organization. Mm, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Um, is there an appetite for general news? I don't have any idea. Let's go to the phone. We've got a couple of minutes here. John and Lamar. Good morning, John. Hey, guys. Good morning. Look, I, got, I just got a quick question. I've been working all weekend, but I heard over the weekend that the IRS is hiring these 87,000 uh, agents. 
but on their applications, they want to know if they're prepared to use deadly force. And somebody told me, and I don't know if it's true or not, I figured I'd let you know, see if you knew, you probably do know. Um, the ATF is a subsidiary of the IRS, is what I was told. And that's what they're hiring people for. So I'll take it off the air, you know, you can get your opinion on it. There's some controversy there. They all answer to DOJ. I mean, the DOJ and the political hierarchy and the bureaucratic hierarchy, it all stops at the attorney general. But there, there was an ad posted online um, about IRS agents. There, there are certain IS, IRS agents in the enforcement and investigative side um, that are, you know, they're armed. I mean, they're, they're required to have firearms. I, I don't understand what sort of situation you'd be put into where you needed a gun. Um, I do know this, talking about the IRS adding 87,000 agents. In 1960, there were 14 active members of the American military to every single IRS agent. Today is three to one. There's many IRS agents after this act becomes, you know, enforced. In other words, after the hires are made, there'll be as many IRS agents as there are members of the United States Marine Corps. Let me say that again. There will be as many IRS agents as there are active members of the United States Marine Corps, wow. um, 14 to 1, active members of the American military in 1960, 3 to 1 today. That's um, That's scary. I mean, that, that is bizarre to me that we have, I don't know, Rev, morphed into just, I mean, I, I, I hadn't said the word fundamental all day. I hardly ever go a day. It's a fundamentally different nation we're living in. Controlling the people. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. So like it or not, that was Freehold's choice, right? I mean, he's gained some seniority around been here. been busting a gut to, to well, I mean, choose it, the song of the here's day. Here's the deal I would have made with him. Y'all made that deal separate to me. If the Phillies had beaten the Mets two of three, he gets to name the he song on this it. Monday. But the Phillies blowing a lead yesterday, Freehold gives up the right to suggest <laughs> strongly. So what I'm going to do, um, I think I've got some sick days on music, right? I got about eight or ten or twelve because I didn't use Springsteen as much as, as because we were in dispute. I mean, a legal, you know, we're litigating yeah. against one another. Yep. Um, so the rest of the week it's Dylan, right? No, nope. I mean it's um. No. No. It's Tuesday, Please. Bob Dylan. It's Wednesday, no. Bob Dylan. It's Thursday, Bob Dylan. It's Friday, George Strait. The majority of our listeners have agreed that we made a good choice on Friday. Far more mainstream, um, far more likable, far less controversial. Um, so we, we did well on Friday at, at more, uh, I don't know, Rev, at, at more conventionally positioning in ourselves uh, with, with the musical artists. So, yeah, I mean, tomorrow it'll be Dylan, Wednesday <laughs> no, it'll be Dylan, and Thursday it'll be Dylan. Real quick Dylan story. You ready? Um, I left the beach yesterday. I uh, wanted to get home in time for the Braves game and the race. I normally just wanted to get – but, I mean, it's kind of, you know, the Astros. I'm excited about this series. The Braves won two of three. So, it's almost like you're playing with house money. You know, the, the likelihood of sweeping a team as good as the Astros is is hard. I mean, right. it really is winning two of three right. is, is good enough. So, um, so I'm leaving – the beach to get home in time to watch the Astros and Braves and to watch Kyle Larson, Rick Chase Elliott. Rick Chase Elliott. Um, <laughs> I turned uh, on my iTunes. My daughter's got me on this iTunes family plan. And um, you go to Bob Dylan, and it's Bob Dylan Essential. You've seen these Essential collections for all these, um, I don't know, I don't want to say iconic because all the artists who have it are, are not iconic. They're, 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 uh, they've had long careers, and they've got this Essential collection. 
Well, Dylan had about 800 songs. And then this, and this of course he did. 778. Did I he never heard any good of. ones? Got to be 778. I never heard of. Um, 500 or, or longer than 15 minutes long. <laughs> so, so I started listening to Dylan when I left the beach. Takes me about an hour and 40 minutes to get from there to here. I'm home in Florence. So I, I played, I told Rev, I said, I started playing Dylan when I left the beach. And, you know, an hour and a half later in six Dylan songs, <laughs> it would have been 20 key, uh, George Strait songs or 25 uh, Jeff Healy songs. But it was um, about four or six Dylan songs. Uh, oh, man. And you're home from uh, from uh, from there. So, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll play some Dylan and you tomorrow. did that on purpose. I did. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, I got to find a place to go now. I mean, Springsteen's been my go-to guy on the lyrics. Mm. I mean, you know that. I mean, yeah. I'm kind of a lyric guy. Right. So Springsteen has lyrics that stir me and then make me think and uh, provoke me to, I don't know, just, I don't know, and uh, introspectively challenge what I believe. Um, so I got to find somebody else to do that. And Dylan's kind of the likely suspect. And um, I'll <laughs> tell you, you this, so. if I started today studying the body of work that is Bob Dylan's, I couldn't live long enough. I mean, there, there is no way, like him or not, the body of work he's put together is as weird and out of the mainstream, but as broad-reaching as any ever. I saw a stat um, once Springsteen and I, and I got a fraud suit coming. You guys know about that. I mean, I got a big lawyer. He's got a big lawyer. Um, We're going to break him in court. Um, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) So um, Dylan has more uh, music played in movies than any other artist ever. But 70% of the people watching the movie have no idea that's a Dylan song. You know, or Dylan, uh, God, it's not really the lyrics very often. It's the uh, the background music. So, yeah, when you go to a movie, there's a pretty good chance you're going to hear a Dylan song. There's a better chance that you won't know what it is and if it's a Dylan song or not. So, Mike, do you care to elaborate why the, the choice? That was Jeff Healy Band, but it wasn't Jeff Healy Band's big hit, which was Angel Eyes. I remember that one. Uh, this was another song by Healy, right? And why, why was it something you wanted to play? Um, I just thought it was a little bit more. They're both... A little mellow, but it was a little bit more upbeat than Angel Eyes. Angel Eyes is like a love ballad. So so to get people stirring and, and going on a yeah. Monday morning, fair enough. Um, I'm sure you watched the race yesterday. Oh, yeah, it was glued okay, to I, it. I, I figured you would. We'll talk about that after the show, right? Don't want to really, um, don't want to get our personal business over the over the air. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, uh, can actually the Mets won three out of four. There was a double header. Okay, that, you're uh, right. Yeah, they, they won three of four. Thank you, uh, and, Freehold. And, Appreciate and, that. Um, where did Robert Kaley go to college at? Robert went uh, to the University of South Carolina. Oh, my gosh. And, and the man must have spent some time there at Gambrill Hall, and they had political science and history. So whenever I hear these people talk about they're on a kamikaze mission for democracy, that drives me nuts, man, because if you were to ask anybody that was in Iwo Jima or Okinawa, uh, they know what that is. But see, all this stuff is poll tested. Guess what? Those people are dead now, or either there's just enough people out here that don't give a John Brown. They don't know what the heck they're talking about when they say that. So, But you, you mentioned the name Fred Lynn. I'm going to give you credit on that. You said something about the umpires being Fred Lennon and Carl Yastrzemski. You remember Bernie Carbo and Ed Arbrister back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, even we can get the great talents that you have there. You got Diamond Day and you got Magic Mike. And who was there, Colin Fogg, this weekend? 
the Mets. So we can always bring people together. And I always think about that. Now, I'm going to give you a quick story about Philadelphia. I had a chance to go to a Phillies game back in 1978 in Veterans Stadium. And I think this is the first year they had this thing, what they call a Philly fanatic. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen that thing? I do. Yeah. Mascot. Yeah. Kind of a storied mascot. All right. So you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and this thing came out. And I remember my dad, he was with me that day, and he said, man, that's a sorry-looking critter. <laughs> that's how he defined him. And you were bringing up something. You were talking about Brian Stelter. That's a sorry-looking critter. You're talking about a guy who has a face for radio. And to get, I'm going to bring the, the Braves into this. John Malone, you know who that is, don't you, Ken? Mm-hmm. Liberty Media. I guess he's got involved with CNN now. So at least somebody's got some common sense that these people that are on CNN, there ain't no way that they can stay around with the stelters of the world and all these people. So at least there is hope. There's hope on the horizon. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. John Malone, I mean, Stetler called out John Malone, not by name yesterday, but Malone's one of these, um, I don't know, media heavyweights. And um, he, he's one of these people that's going to redirect the paths and course of, of CNN and Stetler. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to me. And I, I guess you do what you do and, and we all move on. But if I was going to um, discontinue someone's show, I wouldn't let him back on the air. I mean, I just and that's wouldn't. kind of standard practice that, in that broadcast, would have been, But I mean, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, I, you know, standard practice and what I would do are normally not the same things. <laughs> <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Um, but I would have told Stetler, hey, man, appreciate all you've done. I mean, if we owe you some money, we owe you some money. We'll argue about it and sue one another, and that'll work itself out. But there's no way I would let a guy back on the air because you know he's going to take a shot at you. The reason that Malone says, and once again, um, he's not the only guy making this decision, but he's one of the chief investors in, uh, in, in CNN and one of the people responsible for trying to chart its new course. But the reason is that they believe they have given up their credibility in the name of never Trumpism and, um, and Zucker right. was a big fan of that. And I mean, they found a universe and they made money. Um, they've always made money, but they're not making enough for their, um, shareholders. The shareholders don't believe it's a wise investment to go down that road any further. Cause what do you do when Trump's not there? I mean, if you hate the guy and there's an audience that hates him with you and all of a sudden there's not much reason to hate the guy cause he's not the president anymore or candidate for president. Um, th- that's just kind of a, it's a short term goal. It's like a sugar high. It's not a sustainable business model, but there's no way that I would have told Stetler, hey, man, we're letting you off the air or we're discontinuing your show because you've proven to not be credible. You're a, uh, you're a hack. You're a, a partisan journalist. And, uh, but you let him go back on one time to tell everybody he's not really a partisan journalist and seeing it to make it a grave error and this John Malone greedy business guy. And that's not what he said. I'm interpreting, but, but that's pretty much what he, mm-hmm. what he implied the implication. I think the interesting point of what Robert said, I'm talking about in the eight o'clock hour, what Robert said most interesting to me is um, the polling companies that we've trusted are not to be trusted. One, they're, they're motivated by a bias. They're motivated by a, an objective. And secondly, they just, they've not adapted. They, they asked 46 question surveys. They're, they're calling millennials on their landlines. The only reason a millennial would have a landline is to have internet, right? 
But it, I, I would imagine, I think you've got to have if some then. sort of, um, huh? If then. Yeah, I mean, you know, is that the case? I mean, do you have to have a landline no, to have Wi-Fi? No. Okay, I see, I thought you, you did. I think you can have broadband without a landline in your house. Okay, didn't know that. I mean, that's I news to me. Your, a lot of but but I'm not a millennial. I mean, I, you know, I don't keep up with that. I just know at, at, at the house, as we say in the country, <laughs> at the house, um, you know, the, the wife said, we got to do this to get that. So good enough for me when she says that. But but it's so interesting that Robert, here, here's what's interesting to me. I, I, I meant to send Kahaley this yesterday. So I'm reading 538, and they're a bit giddy. I mean, they've got the directive. They're in the cathedral. I mean, these folks are all cathedralists. Remember, they don't send emails anymore. They know what one another is thinking. They have ESPN. Uh, they're like Wayne Gretzky playing hockey or Larry Bird playing uh, basketball. They already know what you're going to do before you know. Uh, Bird passes the ball to where you're going. You just don't know you're going there yet. Same thing with Wayne Gretzky and um, and hockey. So when when um when five thirty eight list all their surveys, their polls, they have kind of a designation now that they, they denote whether one is a Republican poll or a Democrat poll. The only poll that is labeled is Trafalgar. It's got a red star beside it, and below the the footnote says. Red Star means funded by Republicans. Now, now, Robert has told me extensively, and I'll never um, break his um, confidence, but Robert tells me in some of these private conversations, who pays for his poll? Some are very um, notable people. You would recognize the name. You would recognize the business. Um, and they're not real motivated by anything other than um, who's going to win. You know, we, we've got a business. We, we've got a, a business model. Um, the Democrats believe this. The Republicans believe that. We need accurate information. We're, we're not in the, into the hyperbolic. We're not into the sensational. So, so when Robert provides this information, it's to people who are making business decisions. Um, they're making investments in their business. Because, Robin, I've asked Robert this. So they're paying you to poll? Robert says, no, they're investing in their business. And he referred to them as corporations and wealthy individuals. Cor- corporations and wealthy individuals who need accurate information. So, so Robert does not work for the Republican Party. He does not work for campaigns or candidates. Um, he works by and large for wealthy individuals and corporations who need accurate information. So if you are a, let's say you're an oil company, and you know where the Democrats are on oil. I mean, they've let it be known. I mean, they, they want us all fossil fuel. Zero two, excuse me, zero, zero CO2. A lot of EOs there. Zero <laughs> CO2 emissions by 2035. Um, if you're the coal or oil business, you want to know, you know, does Herschel Walker have a chance to win in Georgia? I don't want to know what Emerson says or Quinnipiac poll says. I want to know what, what you believe is accurate about that race and, and what we need to do based upon. In other words, do we need to give Walker money? Do we need to give Oz money? Is there, are we making a wise investment in this business and in this, in this enterprise? I don't know if you saw this or not. I put something on Facebook Saturday. Um, I read... Oh, God, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. I probably read, I skimmed 100 pages. I probably read, what are you chuckling at? I'm just. <laughs> I may have skimmed a couple just, of hundred pages of the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, my gosh. I read probably 30 pages. Okay. Uh, this is on a Saturday. This is how lousy a life I have. <laughs> I mean, this is how, I mean, my life used to be full of excitement and, and you know, just thrills and adventures. And it will be again. I mean, we'll tailgate in a couple of weeks at the football game. There you go. That's about as crazy as we get anymore. <laughs> but but my life is um, just digressed to the place where a big weekend or big Saturday for wow. me is is reading 
a couple of hundred pages well, of the inflation reduction tell act. us what you learned there, there there's a lot of things that 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 to be concerned about i mean the major thing to me um there's a 16.4 cent per barrel um tax on domestically produced oil that doesn't seem like much 16.4 until you figure what 100 million barrels a day i mean that's kind of where we are as consumers in america um we double the excise tax on coal production in America. Um, how does how does Joe Manchin trying to make oil and coal sure. production? I mean, they're, they're painfully expensive. I, mean, right? I call that part of the legislation. You'll drive an electric car because we said you'll drive an electric car, mm-hmm. not because market forces, not because Tesla's done such a fine job or GM or Ford. Uh, you're going to drive an electric car because we say you're going to drive an electric car. So um, the coal manufacturing, the coal production is going to be, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a big increase. It basically doubles the excise tax on coal in America, coal production in America. Um, so, you know, Joe Manchin being a, that's the oddity of all this. Joe Manchin is a Democrat in West Virginia who won statewide. I mean, I don't understand West Virginia. I got a friend who grew up in West Virginia. Um, I may try to pin him down to get him to explain to me how that can be. I guess Manchin has a name ID, a brand, um, but he's not your friend if you're a West Virginian. West Virginia probably has as high a percentage of America First Republicans as any state in America. I mean, I don't know if there's more there. There's probably more in Texas or Florida or somewhere like that because there's just more people there. But but as a percentage, West Virginia is probably as Trumpy a state as there is, but they've got a Democrat in the Senate. I mean, New York doesn't have a Republican in the Senate. California doesn't have a Republican in the Senate. Connecticut doesn't have a Republican. I mean, none of the real liberal states have a conservative in the Senate. Uh, I guess, you know, um, but where is Susan Collins is from? Maine. Maine. That's a little bit odd. Ain't but 60 people up there. So if you get 31 to vote, <laughs> you win the election. Um, but th- that would be kind of an interesting debate. What is the most liberal state? to have a conservative i can tell you this there's nothing that rivals mansion and west virginia so when you look at a deeply divided state we talk about georgia we talk about pennsylvania talk about wisconsin west virginia is not a swing state some republican needs to get off his ass and beat joe mansion and the next time he runs i mean that's just will the voters hold him into account i don't know i don't know because in the legislation it clearly says that we're doubling the excise tax on coal produced uh, domestically, and we're adding a 16.4 cent per gallon tax on domestically produced, um, it doesn't say foreign produced, domestically produced barrels of oil. Um, and then once again, when you read, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but but the implication is you will drive an electric car because we say you will drive an electric car. And a Jennifer Granholm yesterday on one of the Sunday morning shows that don't much matter anymore, she said... Um, you know, we talked about inflation, price of groceries, and and gas, and all. She kind of said, "I mean, it's just weird. I don't know. It's just it's bizarre to me that that she's not more connected or in tune. You know where I'm headed. She's I mean, she said, deaf. "Yeah, I mean, people are talking about how much groceries are and how much fuel is." And she says, "Yeah, but you can save thirty percent if you uh, retrofit your home to a solar panel." In other words, if you'll just all of a sudden come up with what well, what is it a hundred grand? I don't know how much does it cost to retrofit. Um, it's a little bit like the Smokey Bear argument I made. 
you know, when Smokey Bear says only you can prevent forest fires, and, and my argument has always been, I, I don't want to be the only one. <laughs> I, I want a lot of people to be able to stop forest fires. But Smokey the Bear says only you can prevent forest fires. No, no, I don't want that pressure. I mean, I, I didn't ask for that responsibility. Stop it, Smokey. Uh, say all of you can, and I'm cool with that. All, okay, I'm in the club. I'll help all I can. But don't put it on me. But it's almost like, um, <laughs> it's almost like only you can save the planet. You know, you're uh, if you don't drive this electric car, then the um, and you know, only you can retrofit your home to solar panels. And uh, so, so yeah, groceries are twice as much today as they normally and historically have been. Um, we're getting a deal on gas because it's less than four dollars a gallon. Oh, yeah, we're getting sure a, feels what, like a what deal. a deal on gasoline. And the only reason gas has gone down, we touched on it this morning. Let me um reiterate: the only reason gas has gotten less expensive is. One, China has um, activated some pretty significant draconian, as a matter of fact, lockdowns in response to kind of a COVID outbreak. The um, well, I, I get somebody lost in these variants. There's, you know, and the um, in the midterm variant, the midterm variant has um has led China to kind of lock itself down a bit, and their fuel consumption went down fairly dramatically because when a when a communist country says stay home, you better stay home. I mean, they they mean it. And um, combine that with a million barrels a day being um, released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, we'll have to replenish that. And there's less in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve than there has been since 1985. So um, that's why fuel has gone down a bit. And people are driving less. I mean, people are driving less because they don't have as much money. You go to the grocery store, you know, you do these other things, you decide to not drive as much. So, um and, you know, the people are carpooling. They're they're trying to make killing two birds with one stone. I mean, when you look at the um, the miles driven in July of 2022, it's about what they were in 2017. We got more people here. You would expect the miles to be continue to increase, but um, no, not the case. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Got trivia in about uh, twenty minutes or so. Uh, Pepsi of Florence is our sponsor on Monday and Friday. Or they actually, uh, I don't want to say they're the daily sponsors. They sponsor a certain segment of our show on Monday and Friday. Uh, I can hear them now saying, "Don't you affiliate us with you anymore?" And we really uh, <laughs> intend to be and have committed to. Let's go. Let's go to the phone. Here's uh, Joe in Florence. Good morning, Joe. Hi, good morning. Uh, Ken, the other problem with those two taxes you mentioned is that they're hidden taxes, and thus they're going to be reflected in the price of the products that they're used to make, like gasoline or electricity, which means that the consumer is going to blame who when the prices go up? The companies, not the guilty party, which is the government. They get to skate. Thank you, sir. So well said. Sure they thought of that. Uh, We need to give that guy a resume to be a college professor. He needs to be an economics professor um, at a college or university near you uh no doubt about it i mean corporations will, will figure a way to pass along the burden or cost or expense of, of doing business I mean, i've been in business all my life uh, it's the nature of business we're involved in a project now that requires lumber coming down the only way we can make our math work is for lumber to come a little bit i mean lumber's getting closer to where it was in some places it may already be but um but we have a model we have a um we know what our price point is. And when lumber got that expensive, we just knew we couldn't get to the price point. What did we do? We sat idly by for six months, well, about eight months. Guess what we did, Rev? We serviced debt at the bank for eight months. 
you know, we put a lot of things on hold for eight months. We had an asset, an investment that we thought was a good investment, uh, not such a good one. I'll tell you something that really bothers me today. And we're jumping around. We always do in the last hour. Um, I read over the weekend, I want to make sure I get this right. Um, the world's second largest. Is somebody on the phone? Let's go. I don't want to jump around. That's unfair to them. They may want to comment on something consistent with what we're talking about. Ted in Myrtle Beach. Hello, Ted. Hey, Ken. How are you guys today? Hey, Ted. How are you? I'm doing great. Great show, by the way. Um, I wanted to bring up another subject, and maybe you've already covered this this morning, but I wanted to talk about the 87,000 auditors that the IRS is looking to hire. And one thing that has not been picked up by the mainstream media uh, on this topic is the fact that right now there's a little bit over a million accountants in the U.S. working. So if you do the math on that, 87,000 new auditors is about 6 to 7% of the current workforce. And our universities right now are only cranking out about 40,000 a year of new accountants. So all these new accountants is just going to turn the accounting industry upside down. And I don't think anybody's covering that, but that's going to have a huge impact on our economy because these accountants are, they're critical to businesses that are trying to run their, run their businesses profitably. And by sucking these employees away to the IRS to do audits is just going to be very counterproductive and disruptive. Anyway, that's just something I wanted to comment on because I don't think any of the mainstream media has covered that topic. That's well explained. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, as a business person, I'm always thinking about the um, the barriers to profit. You know, it's not the barriers to entry, the barriers to profit. And, you know, um, tax, I mean, any tax legislation becomes more complicated. I mean, if you've got a complicated tax code today and you add more complications, I mean, that by its nature becomes more expensive to the business. I mean, the business model becomes less efficient, less profitable. What do you do? You pass along that expense. I mean, in other words, if there are a thousand tax laws that you got to make sure you're abiding by and you hire, you double the size of the IRS and there's 1,500 tax laws, and the likelihood that you get audited increases. Uh, big business, I'm not saying they don't, they don't worry about it. They're not bothered by it much because they have accounting staffs and they have teams of accountings, accounting departments. Most small businesses don't have accounting departments. Um, they farm that out. So the 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 retainer you pay or the fee you pay your your accountant, he's got a lot more work because they're you know asking a lot more questions. Um, that's why we need a flat tax. I mean, we need to abolish the IRS and move to a flat economic transaction tax of some way shape or form um, now the accounting industry isn't gonna like that but i mean the government's not there to serve the accounting industry it's simply not the government's there to serve the american public and i think a flat tax a fairer tax um is a, a one more centered on economic um economic transactions i think is a much better model let me ask you a kind of a um, a provocative question here um and I'm not, I don't know who you is. I mean, you know, you are a lot of different people from a lot of different places who believe a lot of different things. But how committed are you to be skeptical of the government? Um, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. I've never been burdened by this show. I mean, I've been motivated at times more than others. I've been bothered at times more than others. 
but the ownership and I are negotiating a contract that will keep me on the air for whatever we decide, whatever we decide. Um, I'm not an employee. I'm a private contractor and I'll just leave it there. But, um, as usual, you negotiate contracts. Um, why do I want to do this? I mean, that's the question I asked myself. Why do I want to get up at 4.30 in the morning for another 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Um, why wouldn't I find something else to do? Because there's nothing else I can do that allows me to create skepticism amongst the public of its federal government. That may be a lousy motivation. That may be troublemaking to some. That may, may be controversial to others. But but I'm committed to try and convince you, our listenership, that you need to be incredibly skeptical of the people you've been conditioned to not be very skeptical of. And it's kind of interesting to me. Let's take the IRS as an example. I mean, if you're someone who listens to this show, and I've convinced you um, through a multitude of reasons, and they've helped a lot, um, would you take that job of the IRS or not? I mean, is there any honor or integrity? Is there any point that somebody with an accounting background who could make more money working for the government as part of the IRS, uh, let, let's just use this number. Let's say you make it 100 grand a year in, in the private sector as an accountant in Florence, Darlington, Sumter, Orangeburg. I don't know. I don't know what they make. I have no idea. I mean, in my business, we had one that we, you know, kind of had our own retainer, and then we did a lot more work. We paid him a lot more money. But for argument's sake, let's say that the going rate, the market rate in Florence, Sumter, Orangeburg, is a hundred grand a year for a certified public accountant. The government offers you $125,000 a year to come on board and be an IRS agent or an IRS auditor. You're, you're conservative. You're skeptical of government. You want to see this thing through. Do you take that 25% pay raise or not? What if they offered you 200? I mean, we all have a price. I mean, you got one, I got one. There's some price that I would stop hell hacking government. I mean, if some government agency came into this studio today and said, Ken, we'll pay you a million dollars to convince people that we're to be trusted. I'd probably do it. I mean, I'm just honest. I'm, I'm candidly admitting. What, what are you laughing about now? No, I'm just, you're right. Well, I mean, you said before that I'll say what everybody else thinks but won't say. Mm -hmm. so, so if I'm making X number of dollars on this year, it ain't a million. I'll assure you with that. It ain't worth a million. But what if the government came into the studio and said, hey, we're going to offer you a million dollars a year to mislead your listeners, to tell them governments had a renaissance. They are to be trusted. They're not who Ard says they were. I'd probably do it. I mean, we all have a price. You do, I do, everybody does. But but if you're a I mean, if you're an accountant and you believe that government right now is not to be trusted, and the last thing we need is eighty-seven thousand more IRS agents. How much would it take you to saddle up and be one of those 87,000 IRS agents? I mean, I think that's an interesting uh, humanistic experience. There's opportunity there. There's compensation there. But, probably but probably a good retirement plan. Sure, but it, but it conflicts with your, uh, your, your personal compass. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in Florence. Good morning, Bert. I can answer that question really, really uh, right now, how many people are all for you and they hate the government and they are very skeptical, blah, 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 but they're not at work today because government's paying them more to sit at home. 
all they have to do is give them a few more pretty pieces of paper and all of your things that you believe just go right out the window because you're looking for, how can I buy that gas? How can I buy that groceries? How can I put my kid in school? That's what it all comes down to, that bottom line. That's sad to say, but, you know, ethics and morals just don't win the day anymore. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Someone else is on the phone. Let's go there. Tim in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Tim. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Hey, Tim. How are you? Uh, good. Uh, a couple of points on the Braves. Uh, I know I always call about the Braves, but I'm just a Braves fan. Anyway, you said uh, this was the best team they ever had. I think it's the best team outside of pitching. It's the best – and position players – I don't remember a Braves team better than this team from top to bottom. Yeah, the 95 team was the best team we've ever had. Or maybe the 93 team we were talking about the other day. But you would agree it was pitching dominant. You would agree it was pitching dominant. Yeah, but let me make this point first. You know what the team team batting average is for the Braves this year? I have no idea. Right. It's 250. You know what it was in 95? 252. Hmm. And in and in '93 it was 262. And the only reason I bring those numbers up, and last year it was uh, I jotted it down, of course, 244. But uh, baseball's a funny game, you know. And and this team looks better. They got a lot of young, exciting players. But I just had to call. But another thing I want to say is I don't think you would take the money to change your principle. I just don't believe that. You might say it, but I don't believe you would do it. And that's a, that, that, that's a, that's the ultimate compliment. That that means more to me than than anybody's ever said anything <laughs> on this radio show. Um, wow, I, wow. Well, I, I listen to you talking about it, and you know you want to be truthful and honest and all that. But when push comes to shove, from hearing you talk, I've only been listening to you for four weeks. I don't think there's any way you would do it. It's just, you know, I mean, we can all speculate but that's just my opinion thank you man i'm serious that is about as complimentary <laughs> uh, i don't get many compliments don't deserve many compliments but that is one that i'll certainly <laughs> he's giving I'm you t- more credit than you gave yourself yeah in that yeah, scenario yeah but but he's wrong about the braves <laughs> this team hits more home runs i think well i mean the, the game now centered around exit you know bat velocity and um what, what do they call it angle what what is it called uh well, I mean, bat speed is measured. And, and anyway, let, let's look and see how many home runs that team hit in 93 and 95. I'm not saying this is light years better than any Braves team. And this staff is not as good as the staff of the 90s. I mean, it's a good staff, but that staff in the 90s was lights out. Once again, three Hall of Famers, three first ballot Hall of Famers in the prime of their career. But this this lineup from top to bottom, it's it's pretty good. I mean, it is. Take a break. Back in a minute. I might take a million, but I'd take two million. <laughs> I might say no to a million, but hold out for that other million. I, I'm kidding. You, 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 you that, that's flatter, I mean, that, that's flattering. I mean, that really is flattering. Um, that stubbornness is something that I don't – I mean, I think we should celebrate stubbornness. You know, stubbornness, he's stubborn, man. That's a stubborn old son of a gun. Uh, you can't tell him anything. You can't talk to him. He's stubborn about everything he believes in. I think that's a quality and characteristic that we should – admire more than we do um he's a stubborn old goat how many times you've heard that you know that son of a gun so stubborn man he you can't deal with him you can't reason with him i think normally that's not a compliment but now you're saying 
be stubborn. Well, I mean, you know, I think we all have a price, but either you believe in what you believe in or you don't. And I think fundamentally you got to believe in what you believe in and be willing to kind of live it to the end, see it all the way through. Hey, Pepsi of Florence is our um, Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia sponsor. The winner gets a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirt. Today, your lucky day. You get another goodie. What is that, Rev? Yeah, we're throwing in a set of tickets for an evening of wine and jazz wine tasting with live music from Rod Brown. That is this Thursday, 6 to 8 at the Florence Country Club, an event to support the care house of the PD. Keep getting richer, but I can't get my picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Who was the first cover person of the Rolling Who who was the who was on the first cover of Rolling Stone magazine? I'll give you a hint. It was November 9, 1967. The first ever edition of Rolling Stone magazine was November 9, 1967. Who was on the first cover ever of Rolling Stone? Do we have a call? And okay, we don't have a call. 843-661-0937 is our number. Have another call? Yep. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer. I believe it was Elvis. Nope, not Elvis. 843-661-0937. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Uh, John Lennon. You're right. John Lennon was on um, the cover November 9, 1967. Who was this and where are you calling from? This is Robin from Florence. Okay, my man, hang on. I'll get you back to Freehold. Um, it was not the Jeff Healy band. I thought it might have been the Jeff Healy band. <laughs> first cover ever of Rolling Stone uh, magazine. Yeah, keep getting richer. Can't get a picture on the cover of the Rolling Stones. 1967, I would have probably guessed Elvis, Paul McCartney, or John Lennon. I probably would have best uh, get McCartney and Lennon, but McCartney was not as controversial as Lennon. Um, he was the caramel and Lennon was the salt, mm-hmm. no doubt, no <laughs> doubt about it. In that um, in that dynamic duo. Hey, um, thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Thanks to you, our listeners. Um, I joke around with Rev. Monday's kind of a grind it out and get through the day the best you can. Today's been different. You've been very engaging. Uh, we've had a, I think, a decent enough conversation to begin the week. Maybe we'll have a little better one tomorrow. Enjoy your day. Thanks to Pepsi. We'll talk tomorrow.